Well, welcome, comrades. This is Tribal Theocrat Live on August 3rd, 2013. I'm Christian Gray. Thanks for listening. Live listeners can visit the chat room at tribaltheocrat.com and participate in the discussion tonight. If you have a question for our guest, you can ask it there and we'll try to answer it. Our guest, Wheeler McPherson, will join us in just a few minutes, but I want to make a couple announcements. And First, check out our upcoming shows on the right sidebar of our homepage to see who's coming on in the future to talk about what. Really good stuff coming up. And also a special thanks to my friend Mickey Henry, who's been writing at Tribal. He's been writing some really good articles at Tribal Theocrat lately, as well as handling the admin duties on our Facebook page. Not always fun dealing with the moronic attacks we get on there, but as a fine writer and sharp thinker, Mickey does a great job. Thanks for your help, Mickey. Our guest tonight is the author of the blog at yonderfield.wordpress.com. He's a wonderful writer, a great storyteller, funny, but a straight shooter. He's a lover of his people and a comrade. He's Wheeler McPherson. Welcome, Wheeler. Hi, Kristen. Good to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. Hopefully people in the chat room can let us know if the audio levels are okay. And uh, we'll just get rolling with the show. How, how's your week been, first of all, Wheeler? Oh, it's been great. I've been fighting a little bit of a bug the last couple of days under the weather, but uh, I, I think I'm going to be able to sit up and take nourishment for the show. So it's good. been a great week. How about yours? So far, so good. It's It's been a pretty good pretty good week, good weather up here in the Midwest, and can't uh, can't complain. Let me just uh, interject and say, speaking of weather, if I do happen to get cut off, it's because um, we have some clouds gathering over here in the north. We sit, our house sits on the side of a mountain that gets quite a bit of wind. And if it just blows or rains a little bit, sometimes we lose power. So yeah. if you lose me, it's not because I chickened out on you. You live in Tel Aviv, right? Uh, that's right. Okay. And thanks for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> well, I guess we could talk about. The blog I mentioned, yonderfield.wordpress.com. I'm sorry. That's it. Yeah, yonderfield.wordpress.com. You've had others in the past, but you write a lot there. Tell our listeners what you do there. Sure. Thank you. Before I do that, though, I do want to say um, just a little bit of an explanation. Um, one of your podcasts recently, you you noted that I leave comments on your blog and praise you for the fact that you don't interrupt your guests with your own remarks. And it occurred to me just a little while ago that I painted myself into quite the nice little corner with that comment. I want to plead with you, Christian, don't uh, <laughs> don't hesitate to interrupt me or say something if you want. My remark was aimed at some of these uh, talk show hosts like uh, the conservative talk radio people who are these self-important oracles who talk over their guests to try to make these really obvious ham-handed observations, and the guest that they invited on the show sits there in silence while they do that. So that is not the case here. Um, your your podcast <laughs> is fantastic. So please, no awkward silences. Please feel free to interrupt me, because if you don't, then the chat room is going to be full of observations <laughs> about coffee enemas and other current <laughs> phenomena. So right. let's, let's agree, okay? Yeah, well, thanks for the compliments. I'm, I'm glad that you've been a faithful listener, and that really it makes me feel really good that there's a lot of faithful comrades out there who listen every week or every you know, twice a month or whatever, however many shows we do. And 
I appreciate the comment. I do like to let the guests be the stars and tonight can be more of a casual conversation. You and I have chatted offline a couple of times. We have so much in common, so I think it should be a real a real barn burner of a show. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad to be here, brother. I really am. And you know, not to to gild the lily, but I really have learned so much from your guests. Um this is just about the best podcast going and uh you you've got this outstanding cutthroat band of original innovative thinkers that come on there. Whenever I'm tempted to despair during the week, um as I encounter all the things that we all encounter in this world, I turn my thoughts to, t- to tribal theocrat a lot of the times, and I remember these fine people that you've had on, and it, it really is an encouragement. So, yeah, I'm really proud to be here, glad to be here. And, um, yeah, I, I hope we can be casual tonight. I, I was thinking about this old Little Rascals episode. I don't know if you remember that old TV show, old black and white show, but there's a there's an episode where – alfalfa and buckwheat are driving this wagon that's pulled by an old mule and they go by this car and the car backfires and the mule spooks and starts running like crazy and alfalfa starts screaming put on the brakes put on the brakes and buckwheat turns to him with that wide-eyed negro look and says brakes is gone we's freewheeling <laughs> and that's kind of how i feel tonight we're, yeah, we're freewheeling well i i feel the same way about the show regarding the guests that we have on here, they really are bright and articulate and they, they specialize in certain areas. We try to get them on here that on their special topic and just set them free. And I often will listen to the show um, later because while I'm doing it live, it's um, keeping up with the chat room and doing the audio engineer stuff. So I can't really focus as well as I'd like to. So I, I do listen to the shows over and over again to, to hear what they um, just, just to take notes on on the good material yeah, that these guests line. bring. And in fact, one of my favorites is is Robert Fingelfin. He'll be returning in a couple weeks to talk about my least favorite subject, uh, cops. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's it's uh, it's good to know it, and he's so good at it. So uh, yeah, he's amazing, and uh, just. Everybody you've had on is, and, and uh, you mentioned Mickey Henry that writes for you there on the Tribal Theocrat. He's he's fantastic. He is so informative and precise, and uh, I've enjoyed David Operman yeah. and uh, uh, the the three enfants terribles, as I think of them, Matthew Heimbach and uh, Scott Terry and Matt Parrott. Those guys are great. They're they're really uh, inspiring to to hear them and find out about what annex they're up to these days on behalf of our people. Um, enjoyed hearing uh, Laura Laughlin last week uh, or the last show and uh, Tom Hingist and Justin Contrell is so good. And, and Bobby Lee Swagger, she's, she's amazing. I've really enjoyed the two shows you've had with her. So anyway, just a, uh, a tip of the hat to all those folks because they've been so informative and so helpful and very gracious in the way they come across. Yeah. That's- and a lot of those you mentioned, Mickey, Robert, and Bobby, are lined up to come on again soon. I'm sure we'll get Scott and Heimbach on as well. Right. So let's get okay. into, let's talk about your favorite subject, or maybe your least favorite subject, and that is you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you, you asked me about the blog, so I guess that, that'd be the yeah. place to jump off. Um, I started blogging in, what, 2003, 2004, somewhere in there. Um, 
I'd been staggering through the weeds and poison ivy of places like Stormfront and some of those other white nationalist sites. And I was encouraged to see that people were actually talking about some of these issues out in the open, but I was very discouraged by the anti-Christian and just stupid tone of a lot of what I uh, encountered. Well, one day, by God's grace, I found this blog that was uh, written by the administrator of Spirit Water Blood, and um, we started corresponding. We became friends. He actually uh, helped me locate, uh, relocate from the mestizo Cuisinart of Texas to these gorgeous green mountains where we live now. Um, he encouraged me to begin blogging, and, and so I started the old White Picket Fence blog, which I uh, shut down after I started thinking it was redundant and superfluous and, as Mike Tyson would say, ludicrous. So that's, you know, I sort of threw a literary temper tantrum and shut that blog down. And let me just interrupt myself here and say what a loss and what a tragedy it is that we've lost Spirit Water Blood recently. There's nobody like him, the the fellow that's the administrator there. And let's pray that he returns with full full vigor and force. Amen. Um, anyway, um, so some time passed, and uh, I didn't blog, but I kept reading everybody else's blogs, and I would leave comments on people's blogs. And then one day this commenter on some blog wrote me an email, and he, <laughs> he called me the greatest living white nationalist poet. Well, how could I refuse that kind of a call to duty? So I started thinking about it, and I started this blog called the Caucasian Literary Review. And I started it ostensibly with a view to uh, highlighting white Christian poetry and prose. But I started dropping hints on the blog about certain beliefs that I had started exploring and coming to embrace. And I started to experience some personal attacks from Christians and from some people that I, I thought were friends and that led me into this sort of spiral of dejection, so I shut that blog down also. So sometime sifted through the, the colander of life, and I found that I still had more to say, and I couldn't remain silent. And as I started um, seriously working on a novel, I thought, well, I'd like to get back in touch with the community of Christians who were racially aware and concerned about so many of these things that are occurring in the world. So I started up the Yonderfield blog. So I've been inflicting McPherson on my people ever since then. Well, I've been a big, I've been a huge fan of reading that blog, but I will say that it's a little bit insensitive and <laughs> it, uh, it's, it's, politi- it's politically incorrect. And so well, you need to, it's insensitive of you to say that. <laughs> let's, let's talk about our feelings the rest of the show. Yes. Yes. Let's. The next thing I wanted to talk about, and we don't have to dwell on this, but I wanted you to give our listeners some insight into your theological journey. Okay. Um, You're now a, a practicing uh, Judaism, right? Yes, I am. And, um, you know, the, when I came on the show, I had to interrupt myself for uh, cleaning my house, separating the milk and the meat and <laughs> doing all that. Um yeah, my my theological journey, as you call it, I guess is bound up very very inextricably with my my personal life. So I, I guess 
my answer to that would just be kind of a mishmash. I was I was raised, and I've written about this quite a bit, so it's it's not a, a new thing to say. But I was raised in in bitter poverty in uh, in the South, in the land of rental houses and never enough, and hard faced men that drove feed trucks and wiped windshields when the bell dinged, and sat all day on clanking old tractors when sunscreen was unknown, and death by skin cancer at age 45 was common, and uh, my childhood was bookended by a very fierce, lean woman with these agate eyes, my mother, and by her mother, my grandmother, who was uh, quite the matriarch of our tiny little family. She wore the blocky black shoes and the rolled hose and the plain house dresses, and she carried the sensible black pocketbook that was always filled with handkerchiefs and Wrigley's double mint gum and as many sugar packets as she could scoop in on one of her very infrequent forays into the Woolworths lunch counter. But uh, none of my family were what today's respectable churchgoers would call Christian. But somehow, I learned the 23rd Psalm and the, the Nativity story and the crucifixion. And my mother put me to bed every night when I was a little boy with the Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep prayer. And I was helped along by an annual viewing of Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments on television and the curious Celtic measure, uh, mixture of superstition and Bible that to this day makes my fists clench and my tears pour out when I think about my family. I always felt that God was with me. I really did. I, I felt this presence that I knew was God. I, I remember telling one of my aunts that once and asking her if she ever felt God was with her, and she mocked me when I told her that, so I felt like quite the odd duck. I had a young friend when I was in elementary school that invited me to vacation Bible school, and I heard the gospel and the altar call and watched people get saved, and every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around and that whole routine. And later I came to feel contempt for everything that I saw about Christianity because I saw these gross inconsistencies in the lives of everyone that I saw that professed faith in Christ. And what bothered me the most was the fact that they presented Christ as a a kind of a vacuum cleaner salesman that was standing outside the door of my heart with his hat in his hand, shifting nervously from foot to foot and waiting for me to make a decision about him. But still, even in that time, I felt that God was with me and that he was watching. And so then I went into the Marine Corps because I didn't have any other options. I wasn't smart enough to get a scholarship, and my mother certainly couldn't have afforded to pay for college. And I hadn't even thought about things like trade school, so I I did a little research and went into the Marine Corps. And I got to get involved in martial arts, which I'd always been interested in. I got to travel all over the world. And all through that, there was this, this scarlet thread, this path, this inevitable Christ-scrawled path that led me to ask myself at one point when I was a young man, what must I do to be saved? And so I began to read the scriptures, and I came to faith in Christ. I joined a Baptist church, and I was a good Baptist for a little while, and uh, I, I loved the social aspect of it. I loved the feeling of belonging and um, made some good friends there. 
then I made the mistake of starting to really study the Bible deeper and to start asking questions about some inconsistencies between what I was reading and the way we did things in that church. And I made some of the deacons very angry, and I remember one of them one day coming up and telling me that I probably should look elsewhere if I felt the way I did. I remember one incident that happened. We had a church picnic, and there was a crusty old fellow who didn't attend really regularly, but he was there, and for some reason they asked him if he would ask the blessing over the meal. And so he was praying, and he had a pack of cigarettes in his shirt pocket that you could see. He was a smoker. And when he finished the prayer, um, a deacon who was sitting next to me nudged me and said, See that pack of cigarettes? That prayer ain't going to get no higher in the ceiling. And that just horrified me because I thought, you're focusing on the wrong things. And so I thought, well, maybe he's right. Maybe these other deacons are right. Maybe I do need to look somewhere else. So I I did. I started looking. And in God's providence, I heard a radio sermon one day by James Montgomery Boyce. And it just riveted me when I heard it. And I started exploring who is this guy and what does he believe and what kind of a background does he come from. And I was introduced for the very first time to the Reformed faith and Reformed doctrine. I became infatuated with Reformed doctrine, and the thing that I really loved and was attracted to is the fact that these guys read. They weren't like the Baptists that I knew. They didn't, you know, just watch Billy Graham crusades on TV and, you know, hide their beer bottles in the recycling bin when they went down to the curb on Thursday afternoons. They These guys read. They knew their stuff. They were interested in history, and they actually believed that things of import had happened between the time that Christ ascended back into heaven and, you know, the 20th century. So uh, I embraced Presbyterianism uh, very firmly. Um, was very rabidly proud of my association with it. Took my wife by the hand. We we jined up. We were good Presbyterians. Um, eventually, I was um, selected to be a, a ruling elder. Became a ruling elder in uh, one of the Presbyterian denominations, one of the many Presbyterian denominations, and. Uh, I began very quickly drowning in this bureaucratic bile, and one day in a, in a session meeting with the other elders, I had this epiphany. You know, we're doing this wrong. We're doing church wrong. We're doing a lot of other things wrong, and we're also teaching and believing some things that are just repellent. Some of the things that I'm referring to were uh, – holding people like Anthony Bradley, this Negro um, <clears throat> Ph.D., uh, who's a, a real lion in reform circles. They were holding him up as this paragon of reformed virtue. And I was already very racially aware. I had been since I was a boy, thanks to my mother. But I had sort of left that for a while when I was in the Marine Corps because I was thrown into this um, – multicultural environment but i was i was waking back up i was sort of finding my way back to the ancient blood and soil informed 
mindset of my ancestors. And I was realizing that my denomination was um, far afield, especially when they put out this pastoral letter on racial reconciliation that angered me beyond words and horrified me beyond anything that I could have, have thought that the Presbyterian Church could have done. So I decided that either I was wrong or the Presbyterians with whom I associated were wrong, and I made a very conscious decision. I took my Bible. I went into the woods. I spent an afternoon there talking to my God, and I said, I want to know you. I don't want to know about you, and I don't want to know what other men say about you. I want to know you. And so I started reading Genesis 1-1, and I was determined that I was going to know God from the ground up, not a human commentary, not Calvin, not Luther, not Henry, not Poole, not my pastor, not my friends. I didn't want to cut myself off and be a a hermit or be a solitary cave-dwelling mystic, but I started relearning the Bible from the ground up, and... I became very struck with the New Covenant, the idea of the New Covenant that is discussed in such poetic detail in the book of Hebrews. And I began to talk to my friends and the other elders and everyone I could talk to about these things. Well, I was immediately tagged as a capital T troublemaker. And I began to see relationships slip away and distance and cold looks and, you know, people avoiding me. And I kept soldiering on as an elder and as a teacher, teaching a lot of Sunday school and Bible studies. And I I preached sometimes. I, I actually filled the pulpit when the pastor was out of town sometimes. And I was sniped at by a lot of my quote-unquote brothers, in very vicious ways behind my back. I found later they never would approach me, but they had plenty to say about me behind my back. And so I began to notice also the inconsistencies in what I call organized churchianity. I started noticing how we did things so much differently than the New Testament church, the way it's described in the Scripture. And so after a lot of agonizing thought and prayer and discussions with my wife and friends, I left organized churchianity. I resigned the eldership and and left. And um, we worship here in our home now. We've made it known to everybody that we know that our home is open for anyone who wants to come and worship and, and fellowship and just experience Christ with us. Nothing mystical, nothing goofball, nothing weird, just singing, reading the scriptures, talking about Christ, having the Lord's Supper, doing all those things that we're supposed to do. And I can honestly say that I'm more devoted to Christ now than at any time in my life. I'm more happy and more at peace. And I look back on a day like this in absolute wonder at the jargon-choked rhetoric-clogged ecclesiastical betas out of Brave New World that that I know, that I've encountered, that are out there, that talk in, in this... Well, jargon, that's that's the only word that really comes to mind. It's it's just this this cliquish language that really is not living and it doesn't touch the soul. And I'm 
actually very relieved that I'm not a part of that anymore. So here I am. This is I, McPherson the Heretic, and uh, I'll take the capital H. I, I, I think I've earned it. Scott Terry says that he would go worship with Wheeler one Sunday. Brother, come on. We'll, we'll, <laughs> have, we'll have a time. That would be fun to see you guys in the same room. <laughs> He'd probably get me arrested. <laughs> well, if he's been with Heimbach and they've managed to stay out of jail, so if that can happen, I think you're in good shape. <laughs> well, I appreciate you sharing that, that story. Oh, my pleasure. I noticed that we have a lot of different autobiographical points to touch and they may seem unorganized. Would you care to do music and literature together? No, um, not at all. Or, um, I know I, I do uh, write about those things a lot. Um, yeah, you do. Well, you know, they're, they're definitely interests. Um, you want to do music first, I guess? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, How about some music? You and I have chatted a little bit about music, and surprisingly, yeah, and we like the same stuff. By the way, uh, love the stuff that you were playing before the show. Uh, good stuff. Love the bluegrass and love Paul Gilbert. Thanks. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, music is very, very important. It's very central in my life. Um, my earliest memories of music are my mother um, singing hymns to me. Like I said, I, you know, it was not a Christian household, but she knew a lot of hymns, and I can still remember her um, singing hymns to me and my grandmother singing hymns when I was a little boy. And that was probably my first musical memories. I, I later began to dislike the standard hymns very much because they they all seemed like they were aimed at people like me instead of being aimed at God. They weren't worshipful. It was it was like a conversation with with other people like me, and so they sort of offended my my young ears. So I I, I learned to tune that stuff out. The uh, the amp that I mentioned earlier, who sort of mocked me when I asked her if she ever felt that God was with her. She figured somewhat large in my young life. She had something that we didn't have. She had an enormous console stereo, and um, she had a huge collection of vinyl records. And anytime I was at her house, and I used to spend a lot of time with her, uh, she would let me just go through and pick out all kinds of music. And so when I was at an age I mean, these days, kids at that age, 11, 12 years old, they, they're listening to all kinds of, to me, horrifying things that they shouldn't be listening to. When I was 11, 12 years old, I was listening to Montavani and Henry Mancini and Doc Severinsen and Percy Faith, and I can hear people gagging in the chat room, but it's true. I like that stuff. I like the, the sort of easy listening orchestral music. I used to spend summers with my grandmother. And uh, Saturday nights, Lawrence Welk and the Porter Wagner show were staples. I, she would always make me go take my bath after I'd done my chores. And I would sit there with my freshly washed hair and my little bathed body slicked back and sit on the floor and watch the Lawrence Welk show. And then watch Porter Wagner with Dolly Parton before she looked like a Botox cockatoo. And, uh, you know, listen to these great ads for Blue Star Ointment and Black Drought Pills and Martha White's Flower. Goodness gracious, it's pee-picking good. And... So I, I loved all that sort of music. It was it was a real education, just watching and listening to it. 
lying on the floor and looking at the red light on my aunt's stereo as those big 33 and a third uh, LPs would drop one by one like pancakes onto that platform and the stylus would touch down with this hiss and this music would come boiling out of the speakers. And then later when I was in uh, junior high, I got into band and orchestra and I played trumpet and uh, I started you know, through those classes to grasp music theory. And I started understanding really how music is put together and how it works. And, you know, I grew up in a time when FM radio was where I lived was almost unheard of. I think there was one FM station in a big city that was about an hour and a half away, but we had AM radio and AM radio had this broad, broad scope. I mean, within the course of 15 minutes, you would hear, you know, Motown and old hardcore country and the Rolling Stones and Gilbert O'Sullivan. Oh, Gilbert O'Sullivan. So many of my friends mock me because of my, my love for his music. But I learned a lot about composition and arrangement from Gilbert O'Sullivan, and I still listen to his music. But being in band and orchestra, I was introduced to classical music for the first time. That's something my family definitely did not listen to. But I do remember watching shows on television. I mentioned the Ten Commandments that we used to watch once a year. Those stirring, sweeping soundtracks really did something to me when I was a boy. And I remember uh, I would go to the public library in my hometown, and they had a fairly good collection of LPs, classical music, and you could put headphones on and crank them up as loud as you wanted. And... I remember hearing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony turned up to 11 the first time, and I was just absolutely transported. And I remember, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, I remember the first time in that little small-town library that I heard Wagner's Tannhauser Overture in those earphones, and I thought God was speaking to me. It was the most magnificent, transforming musical experience I'd ever had up to that point. Later, when I was in the Marine Corps, I remember I was recovering from a foot injury that I sustained in a karate match, and I was having to stay off of my feet and rest a lot, and somebody gave me a a Chopin album, and I fell in love with Chopin. It sounded like rose petals tickling the keys of the the piano, and so all that stuff sort of blended together in me, but uh, when I was... A teenager, of course, like I said, all those AM radio bands. And then as I got into high school, Elton John, Eagles, and Kiss, those were all really big groups. Leonard Skinner, listened to those, and I started learning to play the guitar. And then I discovered Led Zeppelin, and that was a life-changing event. Um, Hung around guys that were like-minded. We formed a little garage band, and we did a lot of covers very, very, very heavy on the Led Zeppelin covers. And uh, then I started going to a lot of concerts, and I had the great fortune when I was in high school of being the music reviewer for my high school newspaper. And I got to actually go backstage and meet several prominent touring rock bands. My wife loves to hear me sit and talk about some of my impressions of some of the people that I met. But... I I got to see a lot of that music, and I, I just soaked it up. And then when I went in the Marine Corps, I saw even more because I 
uh, was able to see bands overseas that weren't touring in the U.S. I saw the Scorpions overseas and Cheap Trick and some of those bands. And then when the 80s came in, I discovered Yngwie Malmsteen, and my whole concept of the guitar changed. I pretty much wanted to throw my guitar away after I heard him play the first time. Um, I sat down and taught myself to sort of play like him. I practiced over and over again until I could play really fast. And I discovered a lot of people that played that neoclassical stuff like Vinnie Moore and Paul Gilbert that you were playing earlier and uh, Steve Vai, whom I'm a very big fan of. But uh, I have to say that nobody in the pantheon of guitar players and musicians that I ever encountered ever quite had the level of importance and coolness to me that Ace Fraley and Kiss did. <laughs> Ace, Ace was not you know, the best guitar player in the world, but he was the coolest guy to come down the pipe. That absolutely, I don't care, looking off to the side, never looking at the audience, <laughs> never looking down at the fretboard. He looked like he was off in his own little world, and he just ripped those licks that he had stolen from Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck. And he was just as cool as a moose. That's There's cool. a... There's a guy, um, if you like bluegrass, which I know you do, um, I know you know who Marty Stewart is. Oh, yeah. Marty Stewart has a really, really good band called the Fabulous Superlatives, and uh -huh. his lead guitar player's name is Ke uh, Kenny Vaughn. Kenny is the country and bluegrass ace Fraley. He is he's this great geek Buddy Holly lookalike thing in a, in a cheap cowboy hat and white boots, and he just stands there rips that fretboard up and he's looking off into space like he's doing cool. his taxes or or composing a laundry list but he's a he's a close spiritual cousin to Ace Fraley in terms of that musical smoothness and detachment Robert says that Robert Fingleton says that your uh, your article about about Kiss is hilarious I think I've read that Oh yeah <laughs> that is a classic We we had another guest on John McGregor who did an excellent show on a Christian view of conspiracies he's a Kiss fan too we played a we played a complete Kiss playlist for his show Oh my Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was a big fan they they were the uh, they were the last band I saw before I went into the Marine Corps I'd seen them a couple of times already and uh I think it was less than a week before I went to boot camp I saw them uh, on tour, and I still had the long hair and everything, and uh, you know that that was when they still had their makeup before they took it off the first time. And you know, hey, like I said, I grew up in AM radio, and when I started going to concerts, I saw bands like the Eagles, and they just stood there on stage and didn't move. And I kept thinking I could have spent the six bucks and bought the album and kept yeah. it. And I spent six bucks on the concert and I'm being shoved and pushed by a bunch of potheads. And these guys aren't even putting on a show. And when you went to see kiss, I mean, by today's standards, they're very tame. But when you saw kiss in the seventies, you know, you got a show. It was, it was quite something, but, uh, anyway, I digress. Um, right here where I live now, uh, I live amid some of the greatest bluegrass and old-timey musicians extant. Um, we've gotten to meet some. Um, we got to meet Leroy Troy at a little gathering some time ago. He's a banjo player on Marty Stewart's show. And there are all kinds of little front porch picking parlors in this area. You can drive by on a Saturday evening or some 
sometimes on a Friday evening. And there are tons of these local musicians who are just, they're prodigies. They're just incredible. And they play with their souls and their backs and their vertebrae and everything else. And you can just sit in for free. If you want to bring a guitar and sit in with them, you can. If you want to, you know, bring a Coke and sit and just listen, you can do that too. Um, it's great. Um, that sounds fun. Oh, it's it's a hoot. It really is. We don't take nearly enough advantage of it. My wife and I are always berating ourselves for not going out more to see this stuff. Now, you've you've taken a pretty bad spider bite that has done something to your guitar playing, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, like I said, I, I was I got pretty fast there when I started trying to ingve all over the place. In, in my defense, I will say I never got quite as obnoxious as him in terms of my personality, but I, I got pretty fast playing, but several years ago, um, I actually got bitten on my left forearm by a brown recluse spider, which I knew nothing about at the time, but that turned into a long, uh, nightmare, uh, experience for me. I ended up having to go to the doctor, uh, numerous times and have that wound debrided and packed. The brown recluse venom has this curious dual quality it's uh, it has a cytotoxin and a neurotoxin so it affects your nervous system and it also affects your your flesh and if you want an education in the brown recluse just go google brown recluse bites and look at some of the pictures that you'll see and it's horrifying i was very blessed in that the doctor who treated me at the urgent care clinic was very experienced with spider bites. He took one look at my arm, said, that's a brown recluse, and he treated me very aggressively, and he basically saved my arm. But to this day, I have a, a nice divot in the muscle of my forearm, and it reduced my grip greater than half. I mean, I, I just can't play guitar anymore. Um, my wife bought me a an acoustic guitar a couple of years ago just for old time's sake to see if I wanted to try to play again. And... I think I told you, Christian, that when I try to play guitar now, it sounds like, you know, somebody with Parkinson's disease wearing boxing gloves trying to play. I just, <laughs> I can't fret. I can't, uh, even just basic chords, I just yeah. can't do it anymore. So That's too bad. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I live in the past now. But, uh, <laughs> but that's a good thing because I have absolutely no interest in most current music now, certainly not pop music, yeah. but even country music. we've gone to the grand Ole opry a few times and it's really neat to see the old guys up there like bill anderson and stonewall jackson and those guys but you know brad paisley and his i'm not a racist squealing and keith urban with his uh lenny kravitz leavings of a wife and all that sort of thing what what are you listening to these days christian you know i I, I I go through phases where I don't even listen to music, and then I go through phases where that's that's all I do. I I don't know why that is. It's the same with movies. I either watch um, like three movies in a week, or I won't watch any for six months. I don't know why. Yeah. But I I just like to put on a little bluegrass, uh, as you said. And um, what else do I really like? Put me on the spot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I've always been a big fan of, of, of Gary Hoey. He's, um, he's a instrumentalist. He plays basic rock, uh, blues guitar. He's a Gary, he's a Joe Satriani type gu- guitarist. He's, he's, oh, okay. a, he's a burner. I've always liked him because he writes really, 
he doesn't write boring songs where you just try to see how many 30 second notes you can you know, stuff in a measure mm-hmm. or, or you know what I mean? He writes really tasty oh, yeah. riffs and the, the solos fit the song. And I don't like guitarists that just get out there and just rip a huge solo. And it, I like that the solo, which is a song within a song. So the guitarist that would play with a lot of feel, I, I tend to like those. Gary Ho is a good guy. That's a good way to put it. The solo is a song within a song. Yeah. I, I overlooked somebody else that was a huge influence on me that I really liked a lot when I was young, and that's Peter Frampton. I actually uh, discovered Frampton before he became really popular. He um, put out a lot of studio albums before the big Frampton Comes Alive monster came along, and those albums were always in the bargain bin at the local store and I could get them for two for a dollar. And so I knew all of those songs before Frampton comes alive came out. And so when that came out, I was running around telling everybody, Hey, I, I know this guy and I know all of his songs and they were rolling their eyes at me. But Frampton was to me, the epitome of a good soloist because you can sing all of his solos. And that's, that's a very telling thing to me. That's neat. I, I did play as the first song in the playlist tonight. Doyle Dykes plays a version of, of um, Wabash Cannonball. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, of Doyle Dykes. He's an amazing fingerstyle guitarist. Yeah. That that kind of playing is, it, well, as you said, it's amazing. It, it is. Really is. All righty. And, of course, I like uh, Justin Bieber. I listen to him almost all the time. <laughs> you know, th- this is a true story. The first time I saw him, I looked at my wife. I don't remember where we were, but we saw a magazine cover, and I said, "Why do these girls cut their hair so short?" And my <laughs> wife started laughing and said, "That's um, that's actually a boy." Yeah, he does look like a little faggot. Oh my goodness! And from what little I've seen of him, it seems like he's obsessed with with um, non-white girls, either some yeah. mulatto or some Hispanic woman. His music videos. He, he's clearly a tool being being used, uh, a tool well, for multiculturalism. Here's a, a question for everyone. Have you ever known a white man who was attracted to non-white women who was masculine? Because I haven't. Every single man that I've ever known, every white man that I've ever known that was attracted to or married or dallied with non-white women is less than, shall we say, masculine. Haven't thought always about these it. Bill Gates looking little right. schlumpy khaki wearing geeks. Yeah. I guess maybe the exception is these um these war vets that bring home an Asian with them, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I could make the case that they're not particularly masculine either. Yeah, but, I I only know one, he's got a, a Korean wife. But I don't I don't know him well enough to know whether he's a little um sissy or not. I think those guys just want another mama. That's why they. That's why they marry them. They think, oh, she's subservient. She's gonna, you know, meet all my needs and bring me my slippers. And then they find out, I got green card. I go now. <laughs> well, we know that Kevin Swanson has a half Japanese wife. Yes, Kevin Swanson. <laughs> well, we'll we'll talk about him later. Okay. <laughs> all righty. Well, you wanted to. Hear my deathless words on literature. Yeah, I do. Um, you, 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 and I have talked a little bit about Shakespeare. How did you get into a love for literature? Well, 
my mother, again, I, I keep coming back to her, that, that tough hillbilly woman that raised me. She fostered a love of reading in me and the power of the word. When I was a little boy, she did something that I didn't realize at the time was so incredibly wise. She would say, read to me, darling. Read, read, read me a book. Read me one of them books. And I would. And so she would she was a very appreciative audience while she was washing dishes or mopping the floor or whatever she was doing and i would jazz it up and i would dramatize books or stories as i was reading to her and i started slowly realizing that the word really does have power and that it 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 can move you it can it can change your life literally you can pull a book off of the shelf that you've never heard of and you can read it and it can change your life and that started sinking into me. And so when I was a little boy, I started writing stories. I We had a cat that died, and I wrote a story about the cat, and I read it to my mother, and she cried. And I thought, hello, I can move emotions with stuff that I write. Now, of course, she was crying because I was her son, but still, um, I think that we must be about the business of inculcating a love of reading in our children and our grandchildren. And I mean any book. Um, I've, I've heard parents, oh, don't read that trash. Here, read this. No, I, I disagree with that. Let them read anything they want to read as long as it's not obscene or pornographic or you know, subversive in a Christian way. But if it's a comic book or, or you know, just fluff, let them read it because later they will learn to discriminate. The main thing is get that groove in their mind where they love words and what words do. And among those that learn to love reading will arise a number of people who are impelled to write, and we need writers. And when I say we, I mean our people, white people, white Christians. We need writers. We need a corpus of literature out there. And when I say literature, I don't mean theological tones. I mean literature. You read Tolstoy or you know, just any of the greats that you that you can think of, and people read that stuff, and they want to go out and conquer worlds and marry women and change things and go to college and fight people and shoot animals, all kinds of things. Nobody reads uh, a, a theological abstract and wants to do anything other than tell their pastor that they read it so they can score some theological brownie points with him. We need people who love reading and who will begin to write and will love to write because if they read and they write, we will find somebody who's really, really good. We need a Christian, a white Christian Hemingway. We need a white Christian Jack London. We need a white Christian Marjorie Canaan Rawlings. We need that. Um, and he said in his self-serving voice, I'm right now revising and preparing to uh, try to publish a novel of my own. Um, I, I can say uh, at, the sound of, at the risk of sounding egotistical, it's, it's unlike anything that I've read from a, a racially aware perspective. Everything that I have read that's out there that's from a racially aware perspective – is this wannabe George Orwell stuff. It's all dystopian. It's all set in a future. It's either, you know, just a few years down the road or it's a hundred years from now and, you know, whites are working in the salt mines or something. But it's all this dystopian, bleak nonsense. 
that's not what mine is. Um, I think the book is good. I really do. I, I think it has some power. And at the risk of sounding like I'm self-aggrandizing, I, I think that I was born to write this book because my book is about what life is like today for a white person who knows Christ. It's not heavy, ham-handed on the Christian aspect because I have a horror of Christian fiction because most of it is like Christian everything else. It's substandard, and it's a pale imitation of the world. You know, whatever y'all can do, we can do almost as good five years later. I have no interest in doing something like that. But it it does have a Christian um, basis, and it's about life today for our people, what it's like. Well, we certainly – I'm I'm sorry. sorry. Well, I I was just – like I said, I I think – I was born to write this book because it's about my people whom I love. Yes. And I am, after all, the authentic sunburned and freckled voice of my particular tortured part of this world, the South. And I do have a story to tell. I'm looking forward to reading it, to promoting it here on the site. And we really need books like that. They talk about what it's like to be a white man now. Because yeah. we are under an onslaught. I know that there's not many out there. Harold Covington has written three or four novels, correct? Yeah, he has. He's he's got a bunch. And um, yeah, Covington's an interesting guy. You know, he um, I've taken some heat because I have made complimentary remarks about him on my blog and in private conversations with people. Covington is not a, a great writer, but he is an entertaining storyteller. He's a very clever fellow. He he hides a very interesting, very approachable philosophy about a white ethnostate in his novels. And there are aspects of his novels that are really outlandish. And and like I said, he's not a great writer. Part, parts of his writing are very clumsy and kind of embarrassing. But he's a good storyteller. He gets the job done. And, and I, I defy anybody to read the action sequences in some of his novels and not be just completely caught up in it because he will get you to suspend disbelief. And I admire that about him. He's, you know, he's very single minded about that. I'll have to try to read one of those. Is it a, are they independent or is it a series of books? Um, they're actually a series, but you can read any one of them yeah. on their own. There, there are websites all over the place. You can actually read them for free online. Oh, he cool. makes no bones about the fact that, you know, he'd love to make some money off of them, and you can buy them on Amazon. But he said what he really wants is for people to read them because he's trying to get a message across. Right. And so you can you can find them for free and read them online and. Uh, they're, they're they're interesting. Well, there's people in the chat room that want that are happy to be a, a reader. If you want someone to proofread and shotgun, uh, Scott Terry wants an autographed copy. <laughs> well, great, uh, uh, brother. You'll get one. Uh, I'll tell you one thing that I would ask is, um, you know, I'm going to have to self-publish this because look, let's be real. Who's going to publish a book like mine that tells the truth? Answer, nobody. They're not going to do it because we know who controls the publishing industry. But if anybody does know somebody who's in the publishing field um, that, you know, might be a risk taker or might be willing to, you know, throw their eggs in the McPherson basket, um, put them in contact with me or, or, you know, email me or 
let me know because um, if if I could go some other way other than self-publishing, I, I yeah. certainly would do that. And even if you do self-publish, because Kindle and eBooks are really taking off, as long as you get it out there in those markets, it might have a chance of doing pretty well. In fact, Justin Justin Cottrell was on our show a few times. He wrote a, a not very politically correct book on the rise of the black serial killer. So you might want to reach out to him to see what he did. I think he self-published, but I know it is available on Kindle. That's a great idea, yeah, yeah and that's a good book. Um, that, that's a really good idea. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, I will. I'll contact him because uh, I, I'm very interested in the ebook yeah. and Kindle sort of a thing because I, I think that's definitely a trend. It is. It's uh, it, it may not last forever, but while it's here, jump on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what should we talk about, brother? Well, let's talk about shooting people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, folks, we're lost, but the good news is we're way ahead of schedule. <laughs> um, well, um, shooting people. Well, I'm I'm thinking about violence and self <laughs> violence okay. and self defense. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I have a, a real strong interest in some people call martial arts. I, I call it personal combat. You know, whatever it is, fighting. Basically, I mean. That's that's something else that we need to be thinking at and looking at very seriously. Um, when I was a when I was an adolescent, I was painfully skinny. I mean, I was all ribs and elbows, and I got picked on a lot as a result of that. And uh, when I was a kid, the TV series Kung Fu with David Carradine was was on. It was really popular, and I glommed onto that like a moth to a flame. And then later, Bruce Lee came along, and I remembered him from the old Green Hornet show when I was a little bitty boy. And nobody knew who the Green Hornet was, but all my friends knew who Cato was. And so uh, when Bruce Lee came along, um, you know, that that was a real galvanizing period in my life. And <laughs> has it really been 40 years since he died? I can remember the day when I found out he died. That's, that's pretty sad. Um, anyway... I fought a lot when I was in high school um, because I got picked on, as I said, when I was an adolescent. And then when I started getting taller and stronger and took a few lessons, I uh, I developed this enduring hatred of bullies and jock types. And I've encountered a lot of those even when I was in the Marine Corps, and I still encounter a few of them now. But I, I despise those kind of people, that mentality that, that – uh, you know, let's find the weak guy and pick on him or who we think is weak. So by the time I went into the Marine Corps, I, I was a pretty fair street fighter. Um, I got into quite a few dust-ups when I was in high school, and we used to go over into what we call nigger town and pick fights. And that was fun because it was a good way to try out things that my friends and I had been learning and studying. And you found out real quick what works and what doesn't because you can get your shirt ripped off of you real fast if you're trying to pretend to be Bruce Lee and you don't know what you're doing and you're standing up against you know some woolly-headed baboon with those red eyes staring at you after he's guzzled down a bottle of night train. You find out. As I said, what works and what doesn't. But uh, I went to the Marine Corps, and I had the opportunity to study, you know, very realistic fighting um, in the Marine Corps. And then I was able to travel, and I was very blessed to be able to study with real martial arts masters when I was in the Far East. Most of my time in the Marine Corps was in the Far East. The only real stateside time I did was going to schools for my job. 
and um, and then I would always get sent back overseas. So I trained in a really wide variety of styles. I learned a whole lot about uh, several different kinds of martial arts, and I earned Dan rankings, black belt rankings, in three martial arts, which were karate, kendo, and iaido. And um, well, let me just interrupt myself here, if I can. <laughs> the, the The way I pronounce those words, I'm sure right now somebody is thinking that's pronounced. Karate and kendo and iaido. Well, <laughs> I have I have a real irritation with what I call selective polyglots. Um, I'm sure you've seen them. There's a lot of people who don't speak a particular foreign language, but when they say a word that's from a foreign language, all of a sudden they try to make you think they can speak the language. Like you'll hear some guy that lives around here saying, yeah, the other day I was over at the farmer's market and uh, I, pr- I ran into this pretty little Latina. You know, it's all of a sudden their voice morphs. <laughs> it sounds this. so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And so you'll have the same thing. You'll have some guy from Boston say, yeah, we were, uh, you know, we were having a beer the other day and uh, I decided I'd show off some of my karate moves. <laughs> And I just I despise that selected polyglot stuff. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, <clears throat> as they say, my martial art experiences have very closely paralleled my theological experiences. A series of refining and stripping away and coming to an instinctive understanding of what I need to do, of what's important, of what's essential. And separating that from the stuff that's show, surface, appearances. And just like in my Christian relationships, my fellow martial artists, fellow uh, combat sport friends, they've come to think that I'm something of a nut job. Um, I, years ago, started studying um, the human body, studying physiology and kinesiology and learning really how the human body reacts to certain things. And I sort of developed a, I guess you could call it a course of, of how to defend yourself and how to defend your loved ones. And I even wrote up a booklet um, of, of my theory and practice of how to do this. And uh, when we were in Texas, and I was on the session at the church there. Uh, I talked to the men, the men's group, one day, and I said, "Look, I've got a, I've got a proposition for you." I said, "Almost all of y'all are taking martial arts classes, you and your sons." I said, "Here's what I'd like to do: let's let's take a Saturday, all day long. We'll start at eight in the morning. We'll go to five in the afternoon. The ladies can make us lunch." I will take you guys and your sons, and I will teach you from the ground up how to put an opponent down that's trying to threaten you or your loved one. And I will give you a booklet that I wrote to keep. I'm going to charge you $100 a family. So if you've got one son or five sons, I don't care, $100 a family, at the end of the day, if you don't feel 100% that you are capable of handling an attack and putting the guy down, 
I'll hand you your money back right there on the spot, no questions asked. Now, I want you to keep in mind that every one of these guys and their sons were going and spending from 40 to 75 bucks a month at a martial arts school there in town where they got to wear the little uniform and the little colored belt and they got to you know, learn Japanese or Korean words and do all the rituals and all that stuff. So I was asking for, you know, a month and a half to two months worth of dues with a money back guarantee with real practical information from somebody who has tested this stuff out. Not one of them wanted to take me up on it. So that was kind of an eye opening thing to me. And I realized that, that, these guys don't want to learn to fight. They don't want to learn to defend themselves or their family. They they like the ritual. It's very much like the modern church. They like the appearance. Yeah, they want to do point. all the bells and whistles and go through the ritual, and they want a certificate that says they've achieved a certain level of expertise. And they they don't want to be yeah. a badass. They want to appear to be a badass. They want to have the reputation of being a badass. And my friend, that is not the same thing when you're standing on the street corner with a guy who's determined to French kiss you right there in front of you and your friends. So, I would love to get that training myself in, in that booklet. Well, uh, you know, I, I have people, whenever I talk about this, people always say, hey, can I get a copy of the booklet? And the answer is no. I, I will not let anybody have it without me yeah. teaching them because they need some perspective. What I will say is this um, – Several years ago, um, the great Stan Poston, who's now gone to be with the Lord, he, he and I were talking. We were at a gathering, actually, over at the house of the administrator for Spirit Water Blood, and we were talking about this kind of stuff. And I said, you know, I'd like to, to do this because I told him the story about what happened to me in Texas. And I said, I'd like to do this with a bunch of us. And he was really, really excited about it, but we never got to do it. But if we ever have any kind of a you know, Christian, white nationalist, kinist, confab kind of a thing where a bunch of us that know and trust each other uh, get together if we're ever going to have some kind of a weekend hoo-ha. Uh, I'd be glad to do it, and uh, I won't even charge a fee for it as long as you, you know, feed me and pay me gas money. That, that, that'd be fine, but I'd love to do it. Wow. I don't ever want to teach somebody um, – this kind of stuff that's not somebody that I don't know and trust. Yeah. And I know that sounds all mystical. It's like those yeah. Chinese guys, you know, oh, we will not share our secrets with the white man. But yeah. but in all seriousness, you know, there is a right way to do things, and there's a devastating way to do things. And there's certain groups of people I really don't want to share this kind of stuff with. Yeah, I would love to do that. In, in fact, I think it, Scott just said that we should have a weekend long kinest training camp, guns, hand to hand, woodcraft. Uh, he said that before you, um, said what you said. So you guys are thinking. That's a phenomenal idea. That'd, that'd really be good. Yeah. I, 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 anything I, that gets us into a community, even if it's just for a weekend, yeah. I'm all for it. Plus, I want to see if I can kick Scott Terry's ass. <laughs> I don't know. You try to take his flag away from him. Yeah, we saw he's not afraid to punch a Jewish girl in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Well, those are could you share perhaps a story of where you've had to use some real training to protect yourself or your family? Oh, well, uh, my goodness. Um, 
when I was in the Marine Corps, I had to do it all the time. I, yeah. I, I worked military police when I was in the Marine Corps, so you know, violence was like a daily thing there. Yeah. Uh, Especially when the the Navy fleet came in and they were they had been at sea for several months and you had them and you know the Force Recon Marines would uh, meet out in town in one of those little villages in Okinawa and decide they were going to decorate the town with blood and so you know I had to fight in a in a law enforcement kind of sense there but um, I I've had to fight several times uh, in my adult life uh, when we were in Texas. Um, the job that I had, I was surrounded with some real crazies, and um, I, I wasn't really prepared to give you a, a specific yeah, anecdote. Okay. So next time, if, if you ever have me on again, or next time we talk, I'll I'll try to remember one. Yeah. Maybe one. Well, have you ever punched a Jewish girl in the face? I have never okay. punched a Jewish girl in the face, but I will say <laughs> I aspire to it. <laughs> the night's still young, right? <laughs> Well, how about we switch gears from music and literature and violent self-defense to talk about the state of the church, the real state of the church and Christianity? Oh, boy. You know. Well, let me set it up. I, go ahead. I, my pastor always comes back from his PCA General Assembly and says, well, we Things aren't pretty good down there. I would say the general health of this church is quite well. And, of course, it's not. It's anything mm-hmm. but well. So tell, yeah, us, tell us the truth. Uh, the, the, the state of the church, the PCA, is, is, is real healthy. Um, I, I mentioned Anthony Bradley earlier. He, uh, <laughs> he, he He's written a book. I, I got an email. I'm still on their, their mailing list. And uh, he wrote a book called... Aliens in the Promised Land, Why Minority Leadership is Overlooked in White Christian Churches and Institutions. And it has these glowing reviews and jacket blurbs from all these pastors and theologians in the Presbyterian circles. And it talks about how he's gathered um, scholars and leaders from diverse tribes, black, Hispanic, and Asian, to share advice. Now, you notice who's glaringly absent from that group of people that he gathered together. But that's a good idea of the health of the church right there is the fact that Amphrony is looked up to as some sort of a lion in reform circles. <sighs> My wife and I were watching the YouTube not long ago. They had this interesting thing on the news. They had one of the Walindas. You remember the the famous Walinda family, the acrobats and tightrope walkers, I don't and think so. trapeze folks. No, I don't. No, they, they they were really they're like a dynasty. They they go back to the I think the twenties and thirties. They used to travel all over the country and do all these high wire trapeze death defying kind of acts. Well, one of the Walindas walked on a tightrope over part of the Grand Canyon recently. And they had it on the news. And uh, this guy's apparently a professing Christian. So here he is, suspended above the earth, beneath the sky, with the wind whipping around him. And he's, you know, got his little ballet slippers on, and he's on this wire, and he's got this big pole to balance. And he's walking across there slowly, and they have a microphone on him. And the whole way across the Grand Canyon, what I hear him saying is, 
Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. I take authority over the wind in your name. Lord, you have authority over this wind. Lord, I take authority in your name because you are Jesus. You are Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Lord, you are Jesus. Now, that's easy to make fun of, and I can mock that kind of thing, but that's the mentality that I see in the church. We mock Catholics, and we mock the Buddhists and the New Age people, but we Christians, and that includes good Reformed Christians and good solid Orthodox Christians, we do the same thing. We chant these mantras that we think are magically going to put us in God's good favor. Look at how we read the Bible. You know, let's white knuckle our way through five chapters a day, and it doesn't matter if we really comprehend it or not. We're following Robert Murray McShane's reading schedule, and we're going to get through those five chapters, damn it. And so we do that, and then when we get into conversations with other Christians, we recite the words like they're an incantation. And we mock the pagans for being superstitious. Look at how we view the Bible. Look at how we as Christians use the Bible. We pull verses out of context, and we use them like weapons, or we use them as false comfort. How many times have you known somebody who had a family member die, or they lost their job, or some tragedy happened, and this well-meaning Christian walks up and chirps, well, you know, all things work together for good to those that love the Lord. Well, that's not exactly helpful, and that's not exactly a wise application of Scripture. But that's how we Christians in the 21st century use the Scripture. I look at the Scripture as, well, it's like a family letter. It's a love letter from my father to his family. Think about this, Christian. If you wrote your children a letter and you found out later that this letter that you wrote in love in which you gave them guidance and you set down parameters and guidelines for how they should act and the things they should avoid and you told them stories and all that sort of thing, if you found out later that your children were pulling sentences out of their place and using them like little talismans or little bludgeons, how would that make you feel? Well, that's exactly what we do with our Father's Word. We we treat it like we can just yank a sentence out of it and whip somebody about the head and win them over to our side or shut them up or drive them away. You know, the Apostle Paul quoted a pagan poet when he was talking about the, the Cretans or the Cretans and talked about how they were you know, always liars and fools. It's not out of my imagination that the Lord Jesus Christ might quote T.S. Eliot. In one of his poems, T.S. Eliot said, that is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. And that's how I think sometimes the Lord must look at the way we use the Scripture. Another thing that we do in the church, in Christendom, we attack each other relentlessly, relentlessly. You disagree with me on one point, I'm no longer your brother. I mean, I, I've had that experience myself. You, you know, you, you say, look, I've studied the Scripture, and, and I've come to this conclusion, and my conclusion is this, and you present your, your point of view. And if it's not within these carefully circumscribed parameters of, of accepted thought in your denomination or your circles, these guys, 
they turn into Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. They start, ah, you're a heretic, ah, I'm going to hell. You know, they start rambling and muttering and screaming at you, or they lose control and they start threatening you. They perceive you as divisive or doctrinally dangerous. Well, that that would be me in the church today. Let, let me tell you about this one guy. He he used to blog. I don't know if he still does. He's a he's a self-proclaimed pastor or reverend or preacher. And he's he's visited my blog over the years in its various incarnations and he's written me many times and he's argued with me. And I have this pattern in my life when I perceive that somebody's wasting my time and they're not listening or they don't really want to to talk honestly. I, I, I sort of dismiss them. And I sort of dismiss this guy. And when I dismiss this particular paragon of theological virtue, he lost his seminary mind. He he wrote me and he said, if I ever meet you in person, I'll kick you in the balls. <laughs> and and I and I just you know I laughed when I read that. Wow. Well, a couple of months went by and I said something else on my blog. He and he wrote me again this really hateful letter, and I wrote him an equally hateful response back. And he said again, "You're lucky that I can't be in the room with you right now. And if I ever, Mister McPherson, find myself physically in the room with you, I will kick you in the balls." I would actually Say. like it if my pastor threatened to kick me, me in the balls because then <laughs> I would know that he has a pulse. <laughs> well, you know, I laughed him <laughs> off again, and he wrote months later, and he reissues this threat. If I'm ever around you, if I ever meet you in person, if I ever find I will kick you in the ball. And, you know, this causes me to ask in my introspective way, and I don't mean to be vulgar, Christian, but, you know, what kind of heretic's balls is this guy imagining? I mean, what kind of doodads are haunting Pastor so-and-so sleeps? I mean, are these giant turboprop monster truck nads that smash Chevys and Buicks, and they're rolling over his front gate and crushing his Prius and the family pet while they squeal a brief, glorious warning? Or are they these highly trained, super mobile, small, highly maneuverable Belgian assault testicles that even now are swarming around his McMansion and about to sail into the nerve center of Touch Not the Lord's Anointedville? These are the sort of questions that haunt me when I correspond with these kind of people. And these are Christians. These are churchmen. These are seminary-trained pastor types. But by all means, let's argue and let's split hairs in the Christian world. Let's, let's stare up at the speared Christ on the cross and let's analyze the hemoglobin content in his blood. And let's analyze the saline level in the water that's pouring out of his side. That's what we need to do. Because, you know, it's the chemical reaction that causes water to boil that's really important to we frogs in the pot, right? That's that's yeah. the way we act as Christians. We, we're really good at um, constructing and playing with syllogisms. And we like to do these little intellectual games. But, you know, playing with syllogisms is like playing with video games. They they might 
improve your reflexes in certain areas. They might help your coordination skills in certain ways. But they can also lead to pale, flabby, flaccid individuals that never breathe anything but the dank air of their parents' basements. And that's the way we are as Christians today. That's the way I see us. I, I, I do fear for my people. I do fear for my people. We as Christians imbibe any manner, any number of horrible, <laughs> horrible lies and yeah. distortions of the truth. You wouldn't believe what. <laughs> sorry, you wouldn't. Believe, <laughs> I don't know if I should repeat it. You should. You wouldn't believe what Robert <laughs> just wrote. I'll just say it. I can always edit it. Go ahead. He said. He said. I, <laughs> I had a PCA pastor tell me that that he'd lick my balls if we ever met. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank him for making me shoot iced tea out of my nose. <laughs> Man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I would imagine what, we're going to see. Was his name Swanson or Swartley? Or? Yeah, I I think that we're going to see. Well, well, you and I talked a couple nights ago about how Tim Keller is pro faggot. Oh my goodness! So pretty soon we'll have the gays in the actual pulpit. What a, what a serpentine individual Keller is. Yeah. Robert, knock oh. it off, man. <laughs> okay, um, continue. Well, I'm. I'm not really sure where I was going. Breaks is gone. We free we live. I'm, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I just I, I'm I'm distressed. I really am. I love my people. Um, you know, I, I'm reminded that we come from a, a noble line, and then I go to Walmart and my whole theological construct comes crashing down. I look around at the at, at what's walking around, and they're all professing Christians. I mean, everybody I work with, they're all professing Christians. They have absolutely no idea what the scriptures teach. They have absolutely no desire to know Christ intimately. They have no interest in holiness and sanctification and growth in grace. And my goodness, what a what a quaint idea that is, isn't it? Growth in grace. I mean, it's it's much more important that we can out debate or argue to a standstill somebody that veers from our defined position. But are we growing in grace? I mean, how how do we look individually when we look at how we were spiritually a year ago or five years ago? I mean, if you had a child or, or not even a child, if you had a tree or a tomato plant and it looked the same next year as it does this year, you'd know that there was something deeply wrong with it. But we give ourselves a pass on this. We we think it's unimportant to our king, to our savior, who has done everything for us, and we ignore personal holiness and sanctification and growth in grace and knowledge of him and being able to think deeply and, and meditate and ponder these things and communicate these ideas to our friends and our children and to the little old ladies and men that are out there living in the hovels and the single-wide trailers all over this country? Oh, no. Oh, no. It's much more important to to uh, have discussions like um, you, you recommended that blog to me to look at, uh, Green Baggins. I went oh, over and looked yes. at that. And, and <laughs> you know, I just I weep. I just despair when I, I see stuff like that. Just... Let's just split hairs and argue and call each other names and and construct syllogisms and you know come up with with really impressive sounding 
statements of whatever it is that we've discovered this week. But yeah, you know, I, I don't have any. That need visiting. I just have I have no sympathy that for that kind of stuff that happens over there at that blog and others. And what really bothers me is that all those guys that participate, they're all seminary grads, seminary students, pastors, and they're completely missing where the fire is raging. All the exactly. problems the church is facing and they won't they won't they won't touch it. They won't talk about theology. And theology is important, but we need to be able to practice it. Think of any any issue out there, you know, the the 80 or 90% of Christians send their kids to public schools. Um derelict mothers who send their kids to daycare as soon as they're eight weeks old or whatever it is so they can go work for a wage on some man's productive property. The issue of miscegenation and interracial dating and things like that. They won't, I got kicked out of there. Well, I didn't get kicked out of there, but I got scolded pretty heavily for quoting from David Duke, even though the, the, what I quoted from him was accurate and truthful. Mm -hmm. It was that I quoted from David Duke and you just, you can't quote from David. David Duke was a grand dragon of the KKK. You can't quote from him here. Yeah, exactly. They're gonna they're gonna shut the discussion down because you strayed outside the bounds of what they say is acceptable. And what's so funny is, if if they did the same thing and were accused of it, they would suddenly be hurt and disappointed. Have you noticed how these men? They don't talk like men at all. They they're all hurt and disappointed and and disenchanted at these things that happen. And I say, yeah, please just stop with being hurt and getting your little feelings hurt. Let's talk like men. If you want to get mad, yeah, that's fine. Threaten to kick me in the balls. That's fine. But don't, don't be hurt. Somebody wants to know your view on Tim, Tim Keller. Well, you know, I watched that video that went viral where the, the, um, non-Christian guy backs him into a corner and, and basically says, you know, is, is homosexuality a sin? And and this James Carville-looking serpent refuses repeatedly to say yes. He will not say homosexuality is a sin. And I keep thinking, you know, um, we've been saying, those of us who are like-minded have been saying for years that if you will accept miscegenation, if you will accept interracial marriage, you are going to accept homosexuality. It is as logically progressive. It is as inevitable as the sun coming up in the east tomorrow morning. You are going to do it. And now we're seeing that. And already people like Keller are covering their tracks. They're refusing to call sin, sin, because they want to be, what's that word they use? Nuanced. They want to be balanced. They want to keep an open dialogue. And I keep thinking, did Elijah start up a dialogue with the prophets of Baal? No. No, he didn't. But we have these Tim Kellers, and that's exactly what they do. And that that was another thing that figured large in my resigning as an elder, um, was the fact that my congregation was using Tim Keller material as teaching. And I went to the pastor, and I went to the other elders, and I went to other pastors and elders in the presbytery, and I showed them that video. I, I sent them links to it, and I said, what do you got to say about this? None of them denounced him. None of them showed shock and horror at what he was doing, but they showed shock and horror at the fact that I was judging and condemning yeah. him. And it's that, you know, touch not the Lord's anointed thing. I have a good friend, Mike, 
who told me a hilarious story that is right along the same line. He said he has a litmus test how he can figure out where somebody's priorities are. And the litmus test is this. He'll go up to somebody that he's kind of trying to feel out where they are racially, and he'll say, did you hear about that crime that happened last night at the bank? No, what happened? Well, this nigger went up to this 85-year-old woman and hit her in the head with a hammer, and he stole all of her money, and then he kicked her while she was down, and then he urinated all over her, and then he you know, called her a white bitch and said he hopes that she dies, and then he left. And he said, nine times out of ten, what they focus on is... You said well, nigger. You said nigger. Yeah. It's like you ignored all that horrific yeah. carnage and hate and animalistic bestial yeah. behavior, and you focused on that word. And I think that's a very clever litmus test. It really yeah, does yeah. tell you what somebody's listening to and focusing on. And that's the experience I had with all those guys in Presbyterian on my session. They were focusing on the fact that I was touching the Lord's anointed by criticizing Keller. Yeah. And they weren't focusing on the fact that this man will not call this filthy, nasty, unnatural, abominable act a sin. So that's what I think of Keller. That's a good picture of of Keller and, and the, the church in general. The the building is on fire and they're upset because we said, Hey, get that nicker that set the house on fire. Exactly. And it's, it's very it's very sad because they're they're so effeminate. You know, they're not men. No, they're they're, they're males, but they're not men. And thank God they are males because we can kick them in the balls. That's true. Well, I was going to say something about Keller. I forget what it is now. Um, you, while well, you're mentioning the progression from approval of interracial dating and marriage to approval of, of faggotry, and as we know, the next step is pedophilia. And pedophilia, exactly. In right. Colorado, psychologist says pedophilia is sexual orientation. Um, is sexual orientation that's similar to homosexuality. So they're, they're, they're trying to make that link. These, these little child rapers should have the same protection and legal status of, as faggots. That's right. And it's, exactly it, it makes right. sense. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's coming, brother. It's that's, coming. And you can see it. And, and these guys like Keller and, you know, Kevin Swanson and all these guys, they are going to bend over backwards to accommodate any perversion that comes down the pike. And you know why? Mm. Because their paycheck is tied to it. They are hirelings. Well, they are not shepherds. They are hirelings, and they are thinking about the fact that their livelihood depends on them saying the right thing. I can I can see pastors capitulating to homosexuality and, and laymen going along with it eventually, but I, I can't see I can't see it with pedophilia. I, I see that's that's the time where we we grab our rifles and actually start killing people because we well, have to protect our children. I could be wrong. Maybe we just go for that too. I hope you're right, brother. I really hope you're right because I'd be one of the first ones grabbing the rifles and saying, let's pick out some good lampposts here. But I will say this. In my lifetime, which is, you know, all things considered, just a tick of the clock. In my lifetime, I have seen the climate go from where they said, if you practice homosexual acts, you should be put in jail. From that to saying, if you speak out against people who practice homosexual acts, you should be put in jail. That's just within my lifetime. That's a very brief period as things go. And so 
I hate to say it, but I don't see it at all as a stretch that um, within at least my children's lifetime, certainly within my grandchildren's lifetime, you know, the the pedophilia stuff I believe is going to be normalized. We have managed through the influence of our enemy to normalize every filthy, disgusting thing under the sun. Yeah, that's they they've done it. They've well, done it very effectively. That's that, that's when I shoot people. I'm sorry, but I've, I have children to protect. I know that homosexuality is wicked. It's it's more or less consensual, though. But pedophilia is a aggressive crime upon small children. And are the cops going to protect those laws and enforce those laws? And there's there's going to be a lot of people to. I better stop well, while I'm ahead. That 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 brings up a really important question. See, which is when are we going to do? something i mean we're we're hell on wheels when it comes to blogging you know i'm i'm hell on wheels you know something makes me mad or outrages me or gets on my nerves oh jump on yonder field and put a blog post up or write a letter to the editor or leave a comment on somebody else's blog you know we're we're really skillful at that but is there going to come that point where we're going to actually do something and you know we're afraid to even talk about it because the guys in the silk suits might show up at my door just because I said that right now on this podcast. Oh, you're inciting people to violence. And for the record, Barry, no, I'm not. I'm not inciting anybody to anything. But um, we we need to be asking ourselves these questions. We Christian white men need to be asking ourselves these questions. What is the point of no return? Where's the Rubicon? And when will we know that we've crossed it? What is the event that's going to have to happen when we say, uh-uh, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing it. I will, I will cancel your ticket right here, right now, if you try to do that to me or my family. We need to be asking ourselves those questions because, my friend, the day is fast approaching when those questions are going to be put to us in practical, immediate, and very brutal terms. I, I agree. I couldn't say it better. We are, we're going to see it soon, and it, it 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 scares me to to ponder it because I I don't know what we're going to do without communities. I'm just one guy with a with some guns. What am I going to do when when a SWAT van pulls up and says you broke the law by not letting your daughter go to this event where she would likely be you know raped or whatever? Mm-hmm. Who knows? And- and you said the you said the key word there, Christian, communities, communities. Where where is our group solidarity yeah. as white Christians? Where is it? Why don't we have cooperation and a community spirit with each other? You know, we talked about Harold Covington earlier. There's something that he says all the time that I think is so true. He says, "You can't hide from your enemies." You shouldn't hide from your friends. And I think that is absolutely so true. The fact is, you know, our enemies are very powerful and they have a lot of resources. And, you know, if they want to know you, learn about you and get you, they can. And there's not a whole lot you can do about it. If you want to live like a a fear-soaked slave, okay, live like a fear-soaked slave. I prefer to live like a man and trust God to protect me. And if he decides to let me get taken down, well, I don't want that, but, you know, that'll be his will. But 
we hide from each other. We don't want to be inconvenienced, and that's that's a big part of it right there, the, the lack of community. We don't want to be inconvenienced. Where is our group solidarity as white Christians? Why don't we have um, community mentality? Where are the cooperative gardens? Why, why don't white people get together in a certain neighborhood or a rural area and all work together on a garden instead of making one poor schmo like me get out here and you know do it all by myself? Why don't we have cooperative transportation? Why should we all be paying uh, monthly car notes for these gas-guzzling vehicles when a few of us in a community could own vehicles and everybody else chip in for gas and we drive each other, especially our elderly and sick and you know widows or single moms or whatever – to appointments or shopping or whatever they need. Why don't we have cooperative nursing homes? How is it that these women in Christian churches can go to all these stupid-ass tea parties and meetings and coteries and, and, and you know, listening to Beth Moore give some presentation on a video screen? How, how is it they can find the time and the resources to do that, but they can't find the time and the resources to help care for some elderly loved one of somebody who's in the stinking church, somebody who's a part of our faith community. Why, why can't we find that? Why can't the men in our white community that are Christians who have mechanical aptitude, why can't they help the guys who don't have mechanical aptitude fix their car or their sump pump or, or you know their plumbing or their wiring? Why can't the guys who are good at computers help the guys who are not set up a web page or figure out what's you know the virus that's attacking his computer and that we don't have any of that we don't have that white solidarity and if we don't find it we're going to find out what really really bad solitude feels like and really bad solitude is not some dystopian ideal from some white nationalist novel it is the future we have a Kenyan mulatto pretender on the throne of the White House of this empire. And he hates us, and he hates our people, and all of his minions, and all of his bosses and puppet masters who are pulling his strings hate our people too. And if we don't know that, and if we don't believe that, not only shame on us, but we're going to deserve what we get. Someone says, take care of your own wheeler, don't expect love amongst the the wiggers now are are you appealing to just all the whites in your zip code or are you talking about us white no, national no, I'm types? talking about us yeah, yeah okay I, no i i'm not <laughs> and, and well i'm not naive enough to believe right that just because somebody's got white skin they're going to embrace me in fact the opposite is more likely to happen that yeah. you'll get the most vicious attacks yes. from people who look like you yeah uh and, and even and this is shameful to say but um, the the really vicious attacks are not only from people who look like you, but they're people who claim the name of Christ. Yeah, I've said this before many times. If if you're walking down the street, if you and Mrs. Gray and your children are walking down the street, and a group of niggers come up, and you know they've got the do rags on the head, and and it's obviously they're going to try to play the knockout game with you, or they're going to try to take your wife's purse or something, and 
you're nervous and you're looking around trying to figure out what your options are. And you look down to the left, and here come six evangelical Christians from the Presbytery meeting or General <laughs> Assembly or whatever. And you look down to the right, and here come six pagan, godless skinheads yeah. who happen to be racially aware. Who do you think is going to throw in and help you? Skinheads. Yeah, those guys, they, they hate Christ. They have no use for our God and our Lord and our way of life. But those guys do understand some fundamental truths, and they will throw in, and they'll buckle through your dust right there on the street. Those Christians will stand there and wring their hands and say, you know, why can't we all get along and do their Rodney King impersonation? So, no, I'm not appealing to the Wiggers at all. I have no use for them. In fact, I despise the Wiggers more than I do the niggers. The niggers are just doing what they do. Because that's who they are. I mean, I, I expect a Doberman Pinscher to act like a Doberman Pinscher. I don't expect a Doberman Pinscher to act like a cat yeah. or a gerbil. And we got a lot of gerbils. If so, yeah, I'm not, I'm yeah. not in all interested in what white people in general right. think about what we're trying to do. I do, however, have a deep abiding and passionate interest in white people in general because they yeah. are my people. They are my people, and I believe they are who Christ was referring to when he talked about the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I think that, you know, we've got all these people who are willing to send money to Haiti and Africa, not South Africa, not the whites in South Africa, but they're willing to send you know money to uh, the Congo and Zimbabwe and everywhere else. They're willing to send money to Haiti. They're willing to send money to Detroit and Los Angeles and places like that. But they will not go out and do missionary work in their own backyard. I live around an area where we have countless people who live in these little isolated hollers, and they – they're, they're just as poor as Job's turkey. They don't have two nickels to rub together. They live on government subsistence or if they have really good prideful work ethics, they get out and they do a little farming and they sell stuff at the farmer's market and they hunt ginseng and bloodroot and they sell that to the herbalists and they fix cars on the side and they, they run moonshine. And by the way, I do occasionally buy moonshine from one of the guys that lives in our community. Um, I give it as wedding gifts, and it's a big hit. But anyway, uh, you know, these these people are – they're very poor, and a lot of them, they don't know anything about Christ except what they've heard in these dumbass, snake-handling, fundamentalist, wacko-ass churches that they grew up around. And they know that those churches don't speak to anything about the reality of their lives, and they know that – that has nothing to do with them, and they know that if if Kevin Swanson's right and the Lord's Day is just a like a preview of what heaven is like, and so heaven is going to be like an eternity of Sundays in church, they don't want any part of that, and neither do I, by the way. So they're not interested in it. They don't want any part of it. They don't want to know it, and all the so-called missionary and evangelical people that come around, they just turn them away with a shotgun and a, and a grimace. Why aren't our people out there talking to these people and trying to show the love of Christ to them? And the answer is because our people don't know how to do that. Our people don't know how to do that. The, the man in this world that I have known in my life who was the most full of God 
the most Christ-like godly man I have ever met was a man named Roger Hathaway, who died last year. And a lot of people in the Christian community, you know, think that he was this heretical nut job because he believed a lot of things that make them uncomfortable. But he was an incredibly good friend of mine. And as I said, he was the most Christ-like man I have ever known. And Roger used to, he and his beautiful, wonderful wife, Lisa, used to go to restaurants in the impoverished area where they live, which is not very far from me. And they would go to a pizza restaurant or just a little mom-and-pop restaurant and order a meal, and the meal might come to you know 15 or $20, and they would leave the waitress, who more often than not was some little tattooed, toothless pillbilly uh, you know, with her Oxycontin habit and her case of Mountain Dew in the back of her 1983 pickup truck, that he would leave them a $100 tip because they were poor and white and struggling. And then, and he would say to them sometimes, you're one of my people, and I love you. You need to seek Christ. And that's all he would say. He didn't invite them to church. He didn't invite them to some prayer meeting. He didn't give them any literature. He didn't slip a tract in their hand. He didn't do any of that kind of stuff. He showed them kindness and self-sacrificing grace. And I believe with all my heart that those people will someday see Roger on the other side and say, Man, I remember you. Well, why can't our people do that? We don't have to, you know, have some organized missional statement where we go out and hang things on people's doorknobs or knock on doors and annoy. We don't have to do that. We can just encounter our people in their sad, wretched circumstances day by day, and we can perform acts of kindness. We can forgo going out and having pizza tonight and take that money and give it to that little struggling woman who's a cashier at the gas station where you buy your gas every week and just hand it to her and say, I'm giving you this because you're one of my people. And I believe that if you seek Christ, you'll find him. So seek him this week. Just say that to her, give her the money, walk out. If you don't think God can work works of grace and miracles in circumstances when you plant seeds like that, then you don't have the same kind of faith in God that a lot of us do. That's how you build communities. That's how you visit the widows and orphans. That's how you grow the church and the community of faith in our people. We don't need organizations. We don't need letterheads. We don't need 501c3 tax-exempt corporations that the IRS can keep tabs on. We don't need that stuff. What we need are people who are willing to love our people. And I don't mean the people who dress nicely and speak well. I'm talking about the people who look like the people that you see in Walmart, the women with the tattoos and the muffin tops, the men with the beer guts and the T-shirts that are three sizes too small, the young men with the children walking along, and he's dressed like one of them with his baggy shorts and his backwards baseball cap and his stupid-ass tattoo on the back of his neck that's going to mark him forever as a dumbass. Those are the people that I'm talking about. They might not be like us right now, but they are our people. And while I will not invite them in as members of the faith community and you know just pour all my resources on them, I will do for them. I will reach out to them. And I hope that somebody that's listening to us right now tonight, I hope somebody will think about this. And tomorrow or Monday when they're out and about, they'll look for somebody like that. Somebody that has skin that looks like them and has those beautiful blue 
or green or hazel or brown eyes, and you look at them and you think, you are my kinsman, somebody way back there in that long line of our people that was a Celt or a Viking or a, a chieftain or a peasant or a poet or a priest, somebody back there in that long line begat somebody that begat you, and you're one of my people. Let me help you. Let me show you a little bit of grace. Wow. I uh, don't know what to say. Well, I do know what to say. I think that you're um, overlooking the PCAers, Wheeler. Mickey Henry says that they might be able to help you out if you had a really vicious argument going about superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny, Mickey, because um, superlapsarianism is one of my favorite words. Because that's, that's what I think about all the time when I think about the very people that I was just describing. Yeah. Because I, I drive by these little hovels. They're, they're these little, little two-room tar paper-covered shacks with weeds growing up in the yard. And... You know, these people wouldn't know superlapsarianism from a walk in the woods. And yet the people over there at Green Baggins and the people on the PCA and Puritan Board, if you've ever gone over into that vast wasteland, these people, you know, they argue and fight and split hairs and spit venom at each other about all these obscure, arcane theological concepts. But they wouldn't walk up the front steps of one of those houses and extend a kind word to one of those people that looks like them, but they'll kiss Anthony Bradley's ass. And they'll they'll sit at the feet of Tim Keller yeah. and soak up every vile, faggoty uh, piece of poison that he spews out of that fanged mouth of his. And completely sell out on your ancestors. They PCA wrote that paper where they apologized for the racism of their yeah. fathers. Yeah. Of course, their fathers didn't have anything to apologize about exactly yeah it's it's very blasphemous what they did when they put that thing out but yeah it's 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 a vile situation but back to your point about getting attacked by a pack of niggers and you have some white pca types on your left and you've got some skinheads on your right you know what i know that we're supposed to show preferential love to our own our own people but if that were PCAers on my left and mexicans on my right i'd probably take my chances with the beaners I probably would too, because at least I know they can fight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you can't count on you know, a white man for nothing anymore, unfortunately. But like you said, <laughs> still our people. White white men speak with forked tongues. <laughs> can can we just? Uh, I, I we're probably about out of time, aren't we? Can, uh, can we just talk about the word nigger for a second? Sure. Because I get a lot of flack about that. Um, you know. <laughs> oh boy. Did did you hear about that football player this week that that got caught on video saying the word nigger? No, was was, uh, was he a nigger? Some football I think it was for the, I think it was the Philadelphia Eagles or one of those teams. He was at some concert and um, somebody filmed him saying, "I'll fight every nigger in this place" or something like that. Well, he, of course, the wrath of Satan has descended on him and. Uh, he had a very Paula Dean response. You remember how she responded? Sure. This guy's so nauseating. He he basically said, "How could I even think such a thought? How could I even think oh, such yes. a word as that?" And of course, they're going to fire him. I mean, you know, the deed is done. Paula Dean 
showed everybody that. I mean, it's that's just the way it is. He's not going to recover. He's not going to be absolved. He's not going to be able to no. purge himself of what he did. But he's he's groveling. Oh, he's groveling. How, how could I even think such a thought? And I heard him say that, and I thought, good boy. It's good, good boy. Yeah. You're you're doing it just exactly right. It's really pathetic to see that happen. So many times, some superstar athlete or famous person like Paula Dean um, says something like that and then they totally grovel to the Jews and I, I just wonder if someone could just stand up one time and say you know what I'm, I'm not going to apologize I say nigger every once in a while and I don't care what you think about it and I, I wonder if people would still show her support I, I, I tend to think that there are or maybe I'm naive do, do people really care whether she grovels or would we really respect her if she said you know Sorry, I said nigger, but I might say it again. Yeah. I, I, I actually suspect, Christian, that, that people secretly would yeah. support her overwhelmingly. They might not come out yeah, publicly and say it, but I suspect that secretly they, you know, they would buy her stuff. They would, you know, watch her TV programs and buy her cookbooks and all that sort of a thing just because she did that. Because the fact is, we all think it. But, you know, the, the word nigger or, um, Maybe we should use that delightful phrase that you introduced me to, Northern Community Youth. That's Yeah, Northern Community. The Northern um, Community Students. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's let let's let's think here about what people are trying to do when they tell you you shouldn't use that word. They don't even say nigger, it's the N word. You can't say it. It's it's worse than the worst blasphemy. And we all we all see that. But let, let's do an exercise. I want everybody that's listening to do this with me. I'm not kidding. I, I really want you to do this with me. I want you to imagine in your mind right now your bedroom, the room where you sleep. I want you to see that in your mind. I want you to see a wooden table sitting there in your bedroom. The table is covered with green cloth. Now, on that table that's covered with green cloth is a little cage. And in that cage is a black cat that has a white spot on its side. Can you see that? Can you see that in your mind's eye? I can okay. see it. Now, what what just happened? What just happened was mind control. It's It's a very crude, simplistic version of it. But I got all of you to see something. I, for just a moment there, I controlled your mind. Well, my friends, there are people out there who are much better at mind control than I am. And this blasphemization of the word nigger is a really good example of that. In the book 1984, George Orwell talked about this concept of new speak and how certain words were absolutely forbidden and they were thrown down the memory hole. They, they never existed, and even certain people were thrown down the memory hall. It was as if they never lived. And right now, our lords and masters that control the media and the government, and you know who they are, they say, don't you say that word. Don't say nigger. It's the N-word. As a matter of fact, don't even think that word, because if you think it, you might say it, and we can't have that. We cannot have that. So don't you not only say it, don't you think it. And so we have millions of white people right now in this world who 
will physically restrain themselves from even thinking the word nigger because they're worried they might slip up and say it someday. And if they say it, well, <laughs> you're going to get Paula Deen all over the place. You know, Orwell said that freedom is being able to say that 2 plus 2 equals 4. No, freedom is being able to say nigger. Or my term that I coined myself, which is Niger. You know where I got that? I got that from Alex Trebek, that loathsome, effeminate host of the TV show Jeopardy. I was watching that show a long time ago, and the answer to one of the questions was uh, the river Niger, the Niger River. And Trebek said with this you know, very serious, very reverent look on his face, he said, the answer is Niger, or more properly, Niger. And I thought, man, it's not it's not good enough that you guys have changed the rules of Greek so that uh, you know in in the one instance of that word in Greek, um, the G, the gamma, uh, which is always a hard G, as in golf, you've changed it to be a soft G, and the uh, iota, which is always in Greek pronounced like E. You've changed that so that this time it's a long I, so you can make it Niger. That that wasn't good enough. Now it's got to be Niger, so you can distance it even further. So I say, okay, I'll play your game. You're a bunch of Nigers. You're all Nigers. <laughs> a bunch of blue-gummed, flat-nosed, pink-palmed, basketball-playing, can't-hold-a-job Nigers. Thank you, Good Alex. Stuff. I like that. <clears throat> It'd be nice if I went into work one morning and everyone's just saying nigger. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Well, I, I, and not to be funny, but that would be a sign of, of the restoration of freedom. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a word. I, I love yeah. the, I love the George Carlin comedy routine where he, where he talked about all the racial slurs you can't say. And he said, and he's talking about the word nigger, and he said, uh, well, Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy say it all the time. Yeah. And, and, and he goes, and you know why they can get by with it? Because they're niggers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Oh, boy. Well, I we've touched on Paula Dean. Do you, you have any words? It's a little bit late, and not late in the night, but in terms of current events on um, the Niger Trayvon Martin. Trayvon Martin. Do you have a black? Do you do you wear a white hoodie? Wheeler. I, I can honestly say I I don't think I've ever owned a hoodie. Um, no, I mean I, I don't know what to say other than, you know, I, poor smoke. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Zimmerman. Yeah. The the uh, one of my friends calls him the Justizo. Justizo. You know he he magically was transformed into a white man for yeah. this little debacle, but. No, I mean, everything that's been said, I guess, has been said. Yeah. The, the one thing I do think is funny, though, is did you notice during the trial and all that how they kept talking about how Zimmerman profiled oh, yeah. Trayvon? You know, he profiled. He, and I thought, that's it. I'm prophesying right now. That's going to be the next big buzzword. Yeah. You know how niggers love to use words like, Disenfranchised. Yeah. You, you disenfranchised me. You disrespected me. me. You know, you, they, they love those polysyllabic words because yeah. they think it makes them sound intelligent. Just 
the, the same way that they think that wearing a tuxedo makes them look elegant. But uh, the, that word profile, uh, that really struck me because I thought they're going to latch onto that like, like well, like R.C. Sproul Jr. latching onto his breakfast beer. They, <laughs> they, they're really going to grab that, and I, I can just see it in the future. You're going to be talking to somebody and – You'll make mention of the fact that they happen to be of the Negroid race, and they'll, you know, they'll say, "What? What was that? You, you notice I'm black? Oh, oh, you motherfucking profiler, ain't you? You a profiler? That nigga profiled me. No, that nigga profiled me. I'll bust a cap in his ass. Well, kick him in the balls. Yeah, either one. Yeah, I hear Mickey Henry posted a a article on Tribal Theocrat Facebook page. The Smithsonian is going after the white hoodie as its latest exhibit. Yeah, yeah that's that right next to Judy Garland's red rupee slippers. Yeah, wow. Cultural icon. The first question I had about theology, I don't know if I want to ask that because it, it may not be relevant, but have you thought about the, the, the weirdness in Genesis 6 regarding the sons of God and the daughters of men? I, I have. You know, like a lot of my other beliefs, it's, you know, probably way out there and I'm probably way in the minority. Um, I think it's interesting to speculate about, you know, a giant race and fallen angels and, you know, were they demons? And I've heard these stories where they've, um, excuse me, unearthed um, these skeletons with massive heads and people are, oh, those were the Nephilim, you know. My personal take on it is this. I personally think that the sons of God were Adam's descendants, our people. And I think that the daughters of men were the Cain race, the the offspring of Cain. Um, I think that I think that the Bible delineates between our people and their people. And uh, I think that the sons of God were, like I said, they were, they were white men. Stuff that I've read in the past from commentators and scholars and other people, they, they kind of take the exact opposite view that the sons of God were like angels or fallen angels or demons or something like that, and the daughters of men were just human beings. But, you know, um, today we've got this entertainment industry that presents a mostly sort of Jewified version of women that have a certain surface attractiveness. Um, I think our sense of true beauty has been so conditioned by these Jewish presentations that we no longer recognize the slightly different but very distinctive beauty of white women, or as I would say, Adamic women. And that kind of trickery, it's, it's not just subtle, it's necessary, because I think our enemy knows that most of us are never going to be attracted to Serena and Venus Williams, so they have to put something out there that our people are attracted to. And um, anyway, I, I think that the, like I said, my just shoot from the hip reading on that is that the sons of God were our people; they were Adam's descendants. The daughters of men were the the Cain race, the non-white race, the okay. the giants. The way I read that, and I thought about it a lot, I don't think that they were literally physically giants. They may have been. I think what the writer there was saying is that they were men of renown, 
because they were a mixture of Adam's people uh-huh. with Cain's people. And and those Cain people that, that they mixed with exercised, you know, special talents of rational minds and shrewdness along with a, a striving for worldly mastery, not the kind of spiritual striving that our race does. And, you know, today we see rare occasional super performers of mixed race, but they're, they're very rare, and their children are almost never like them. You know, yeah. mutants revert to type. I, I think that's good biology. So I was reading the Reformation Study Bible study note on that passage in Genesis 6, and it, it gives three views. The first one is that they are the descendants of Seth, then I cannot recall the the second two, but it opts for a combination of the latter two. So there's some in the chat room saying that they believe the sons of God are the sons of Seth, but not even the Reformation Study Bible takes that position. That's not authoritative, but I I, I think it's an interesting debate. And I yeah um, I gosh I wish I could remember what those last two interpretations were, but it it went for a combination of both of those and. It, it seemed reasonable. I don't know. I know that you have some um, some views that are at odds with typical Reformed theology on that question, and so I thought that passage might be a good segue to kick into yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I, it is a good debate, and that's interesting that that came from from that uh, that study Bible. One thing I would also say, you know, <clears throat> I have, you know, we talked earlier about my my theological journey, and I have come under fire from friends of mine colleagues and people that know me over the years as as some of my views have kind of changed and I've become more vocal and more public about them and it's it's been distressing to me oh I, I sounded so faggoty when I said that <laughs> oh it's been distressing it's painful are you okay but, yeah are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> but but it has been distressing um, because first of all a lot of the folks that have had problems with some of my beliefs that I've come to embrace. They have talked about me to other people, but they've rarely come to me and said, you know, brother, I, I'm kind of concerned. I think you're crazy here. I think you're going off the deep end. They don't do that. They they talk about me to other believers. And I, I don't think that's very manly. I don't think that's the way we're supposed to do it. And I welcome debate. I mean, I, I have, um, I've, invited people to openly debate me on my blog and on spirit water blood there was a guy that was over there causing a lot of trouble some time back and i have no problem with debating people and defending my views for the main reason that in spite of my prickly um you know kind of obstinate personality i really am actually kind of teachable i want to know the truth i don't want to be right and i don't want to be professionally correct. I really do want to know truth. I want to know Christ completely. And my views about everything from hamburgers to soteriology have changed in the course of my life. I have held views extremely fervently and rabidly some years ago that I completely reject now. You know, kind of like... accepting Christ into your heart, you know, you make the decision and all, you know, I don't believe that at all anymore, but there was a time when I completely believed that and could defend it 
very articulately, if inaccurately. And I am very, very willing to say, hey, I could be wrong about some of the stuff that I believe. In fact, there's some of the stuff that I believe I actually hope I'm wrong about. I really do. Because there are implications that go really deep and really far and that bother me. But I'm just trying to be as consistent as I can. And so if somebody wants to disagree with me, that's great. You know, I mean, if you stick your head up above the crowd, sometimes somebody's going to throw a rock at you. And, and that's okay. That goes with the territory. You know, you buy the land, you get the Indians. But don't use these pious words under the guise of, you know, correcting me. I'm not brilliant, but I know the difference between brotherly concern and a backstabbing attack. And I don't appreciate the latter. But I am teachable. I'm always open to talk to anybody who wants to talk to me about my positions, my views. As long as they'll listen to me, I'll listen to them too. And I may, you know, a month or a year or 10 years down the road, denounce a chunk of some of the things that I say and teach and proclaim right now. Because, as I said, I'm just going with the light that God gives me at any given moment. And that light is imperfect because I have a sinful heart and I have a sinful carnal mind that gets in the way. And uh, I'm not the most brilliant guy in the world. I'm not a really, really good theologian, but I'm a serious Bible student. And that's just my big long-winded disclaimer. So just, just all that to say, you know, I, no hard feelings to anybody that disagrees with me. But, you know, let, let's talk. Let's don't call each other names. Yeah. Let's talk about Jews. Your yeah. wh- what is your understanding of, of of Jews? I've got two things here: the distinction of biblical Israelites from modern Jews, and the whole question of whether Pharisees were Edomites and whether Edomites were sons of Cain. Can you help us uh, think through that, at least from your perspective? Well, I'll I'll try. I'm, are again, you, you, are know, you I, I did kind of shoot from the hip. Yeah. I, I, I didn't I didn't script anything out for us to talk about, so. I'll just I'll just tell you what I think. Okay, everybody, hold on to your yarmulkes. Hold on to your yarmulkes. Oh, the pain, the pain. <laughs> well, you know, look at the Bible. Very first act of the play. What do we see? Cain kills his brother, Abel, and that starts everything off. Cain is evicted from the garden. He goes off to marry women of other races. I believe he creates a race that parallels Adam's descendants throughout history. The Old Testament is the story of God's children in their struggles against neighboring peoples who, I don't know, exemplify attributes that are opposite the attributes of Adam's people. The devil's children, and that's that's what I think Cain's people are, they're compelled by their very nature with this very powerful instinct to hate God's children and to seek our destruction. The mixed offspring of Cain was always neighboring Adam's race. They were always seeking to draw him into their, you know, their their ungodly ways, their idol worship, their immorality. And they were always trying to destroy the Adamic race through miscegenation. Throughout Old Testament history and in white nations today, the primary method of destroying our race was, and still is, race mixing. The enemy races 
present some dark-haired, good-looking women with big boobs, and these weak white men seem to have very little strength in resisting them. So the race of Cain became many nations, you know, the, the uh, Aramaeans, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the, uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, so forth. About 1800 B.C., our great patriarch father, Abraham, bore two sons, twins, like Cain and Abel, named Esau and Jacob. And again, like Cain, Esau is born first, and like Cain, Esau demonstrates this very devious, wicked nature. He says his birthright is worthless, which is kind of like people like Kevin Swanson and John Piper say today, you know, birthright is worthless, and so he sells it to his brother Jacob for a meal. But after he gets his belly full, he wants it back. But the deal's done. Jacob doesn't let him renege on it. So Esau seeks to kill Jacob, and Jacob is forced to flee the country for some years. Esau's wicked nature still lives today through his descendants. They have this one compulsion, which is to reclaim that birthright from Jacob's descendants. Well, who who is Esau today? Our Lord gives us the best clue to locating them. He says, by their fruits you shall know them. And we can trace their path from Esau to those who today call themselves Jews. We call them Jews. Esau's name became Edom and his descendants occupied the land south of the Dead Sea, which is called Edom. And during the centuries before Christ, those people, the, the Edomites, caused, uh, they caused a hell of a lot of trouble. They lived not by productive work, but by robbing caravans, which had to travel through their capital city, which was uh, uh, Petra, Petra. And about 312 B.C., they were conquered and they were forced out of Edom by the Nabataeans. So they moved up into the land of Judah, and they called their region Idumea. And they sort of loosely spread out, and they mixed with the true Israelites. Again, we have that, that miscegenation thing. They mixed with the true Israelites throughout that whole region of Judea. And they were so troublesome that by, um, I think, 132 B.C., John Hyrcanus forced them to convert to the Jerusalem temple religion, which was Babylonian Talmudic Phariseeism. And that's, that's a religion that had developed in Babylon by combining the old Hebrew practices with those Chaldean mystery schools that were thriving then. And as you know, Christian, that Talmud is one of the most despicable, debased, degenerate instruction manuals of hate ever compiled. And it is the basis of the religion called Judaism to this very day. Well, shortly after the Edomites converted to the Jerusalem temple religion, they basically took over Jerusalem and the temple with their own guy, Herod, becoming ruler over the true Israelites in that land. And the true children of Jacob were pushed to the outlying areas of Jerusalem, you know, out to Galilee and places like that, and some of those towns in that area. Well, that sets the stage for when our Lord was born. Jesus came, and he led his sheep away from the Palestine area. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And it was the true Israelite race that recognized Jesus as their shepherd, and they followed him. It was the Edomite Jews of Jerusalem who killed him. The Edomite Jews, the descendants of Esau, were so troublesome to Rome that they were purged 
from the uh, the Palestine area in uh, AD 70 by the Emperor Titus. And a lot of the Edomites fled to Spain where they became known as Sephardim or Sephardic Jews. And then a bunch of them went to Italy where there was already a community of about 50,000 of uh, Edomite Jews there. By this time, southern Italy was only about 50% white race Greek. And the, uh, you know, the Roman Empire, the Roman greatness was in steep decline. And some of the Jews went northward to the eastern area of Russia near the Urals. And they married with uh, people there and became known as Khazars, later known as uh, Ashkenazi Jews. Well, in recent centuries, those Khazar Jews pushed into Europe, where the true Israelites of the uh, 700 B.C. Assyrian diaspora had settled. You know, our people fled, went into Europe, and the Jews pushed in there. And they have controlled the economies of most of white race Europe since the 19th century. We have to keep this in mind also that, when, you know, when Jacob got the blessing from Isaac and Esau begged for a blessing too, Isaac did give Esau a blessing. He said there would be a period of Esau's dominion over Jacob. Well, I personally believe that dominion has been the last few centuries. What Isaac did not complete was left for Jeremiah to spell out and that is that Eden would, in the end, be annihilated by the hand of Jacob. Now, I know that all over podcast land right now, mouths are agape and emails are being mentally composed, but I just want to point something out. A lot of the people that, that get angry with me for saying this kind of thing, and I have to point out again, I'm, I'm one of y'all. I'm, I'm a white Christian man. A lot of people get mad at me about this stuff are the same ones that open their minds and their homes to the filth of the Jew-created TV and movies, and they let that stuff in, and they don't question it, and they don't see the irony there. I, I You know, that, it boggles my mind. The Jews are a huge problem. I personally believe they are the seed of Satan on earth. I think when... God in the garden talked about, you know, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. You know, he the, the same word for seed there is used. It's not one of them in a figurative spiritual sense and one of them in a physical sense. They're both the physical sense. And being consistent here, you have to you have to apply it the same way. I believe they're the seed of Satan on earth, but you know, they're a very clever bunch. They They've managed to inoculate themselves against criticism very nicely. And there's, there's two examples that come to mind in the way that they've managed to kind of protect themselves from criticism. One is in the church and one is in popular culture. In the church, we've all heard of the Schofield Reference Bible, um, that ubiquitous study Bible with the footnotes and all the stuff about Israel and the Jews. If you want to read a really interesting book, Google, um, I really don't remember the exact title. I think it's The Amazing Schofield and His Book, or it might be Schofield and His Amazing Book, something like that. Google that. I think there's a PDF file out there of that book, and it's a very detailed look at Schofield's life and the way the Schofield Bible came into being. But the the people that I call Judeo-Christians, the people whose loyalty is to that 
criminal gang over there in Palestine that calls themselves Israel. They they do things that just absolutely stun me. There's a big Baptist church near where we live that flies a big Star of David flag outside right next to the, the American flag. And uh, I think about John Hagee who recently said that, you know, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. You know, that's about a 9.5 on the sphincter scale as far as I'm concerned. But Schofield set the, the stage for that because he got all these gullible, shallow Christians believing that the Jews, the Edomite Jews, are the people in the Bible that are referred to as Israel. So that's the Bible part of it. The other part of it is the popular culture part. And about 40 years ago, and I, I've written about this before, the entertainment industry Jews really hit their stride. They trotted out this this fellow named Norman Lear, an aptly named Jew if there ever was one. And among his many lurid accomplishments, one of his creations stands out because of its lasting effect on our culture, and that is Archie Bunker. You remember Archie Bunker? Remember All in the Family? He, yep. He's the blue-collar white man that works down on the docks, and he's got the ditzy wife who, behind her ditziness, actually lectures him and puts him straight about a lot of things. And he's got the um, Pollock son-in-law and, and the ditzy feminist daughter. And, you know, the, the upshot of every episode was Archie's a, an absolute fool, and it takes – you know, the, the multicultural village to sort of instruct him. Well, to this very day, my people will do anything to avoid being likened to Archie Bunker. I mean anything. If they think that somebody thinks they are bigoted or narrow-minded or prejudiced or profiling, they will do anything to avoid that. You see how clever that is? That, that's very clever. It it effectively inoculates the Jew from criticism. And, you know, my hat's off to him. I, I admire cleverness where cleverness raises its head. I also absolutely hate it with every fiber of my being because I think they're the enemy of my people. And all you have to do is look around at our culture and what our people are doing, what our people are buying, what our people are believing – and then you ask, is there something about this tribe that's a little bit different, or are they just like us? And I say, no, there's something different about them. In fact, there's something a lot different about them. So that's my shoot-from-the-hip kind of take on I have a question. Yes, sir. Uh, is... Are the Edomites connected to Cain? Well, because yeah, I, 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 I thought you were drawing, I thought you were drawing this, uh, or, or setting up a, a. Um... Yeah, because like I said, you know, Cain, you know, Cain gets banished. He gets yeah. kicked out of the out of the garden, and he goes off and he, you know, he marries and. But then Esau comes city. from Abraham. Sorry? But then Esau comes from Abraham's line, not Cain's line, right? Well, yeah, but, you know, like I said, the, the Cain becomes, his offspring becomes many nations, and, um, you know, Abraham has the two sons, um, 
I'm kind of twisting myself up in knots here. Um, Cain, in terms of... of um, so somehow, according... Somehow Cain... Um, oh, wait a minute. I can't hear you. We, we have a thunderstorm. I'm getting cut off. <laughs> <laughs> bad connection. Uh, no, you got me in a bad spot, so I, I can't answer your question. No, I, no that, that's just one that's, that's one question I tucked away. I, I thought that... Uh, I, I was having a hard time seeing how how um, Edomite or the, the Edomites could have anything to do with Cain, whenever they came from uh, Abraham, who was of Abel. It, am I right about that? Uh, I'm not the best genealogist from yeah, the Old Testament. I, I think you're wrong, and the reason I think you're wrong is because I just went into that long-winded uh, thing. Well, I hate your guts, and I can't be your friend anymore. Then no, I'm like you. I'm I'm kind of bad about. um, I have to. I literally have to sit down and trace genealogy through and look at it. And and I'm really bad about misspeaking. So I may have said something in that little discourse that that wasn't um, right. But um, I'll follow up with you on that. Yeah, I I really need to, to go back and check. But I'm I'm. There's a connection there somewhere. I'm just absolutely sure that I'm right, and everybody else is wrong. So <laughs> it's you know, I, it's, it's going to be it's going to come out. That, you know, uh, McPherson has spoken. So now you want to read the chat room dialogue later, and in there is a link that Mickey posted to an article by Addy, which is a refutation of of Christian identity's dual seed line theory. I'm going to put that in my queue to read. Okay, and perhaps you could read it too, so that whenever we talk next, we can discuss it. Yeah, that sounds good. <clears throat> An important thing to remember, though, is that whenever we do talk again, that I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> you hold the keys, my brother. Well, I people are going to ask, are you CI? So just deal with that right now. Yeah, no, I'm not. Um, I get accused of that all the time. Everybody says, oh, you're, you're CI, right? I'm not. Um, when I started you know earlier i described how i sort of went back to to square one and started just rereading the bible trying not to use any preconceived notions trying not to let any any man-made traditions influence me or anything when i started coming to certain conclusions some of which disturbed me and some of which still disturbed me i started asking questions of some of my friends and i said you know have you ever thought this or have you ever considered that or have you ever speculated about this and one of the friends that i said that to said that sounds suspiciously like some of that ci stuff well i I didn't know anything about it and he said you know who you ought to talk to is and he gave me a name and the name is actually somebody that you know christian but anyway he said he used to be in the CI stuff. And then he, I think, walked away from it. And he said, you, you might want to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Well, I I wrote him, and I asked him some questions. And the upshot of what he said was, yeah, I'm not CI anymore. He said, I still do believe that, that we are the offspring of Israel. I think we're the, we are the lost sheep. But he said, all that other stuff I've, I've repudiated, and I don't believe it. Well, that kind of intrigued me, and I started checking and reading, and I found out what CI was. And I very quickly realized these guys ain't me. That, that's not what I believe. I 
I also ask questions of some of my kinist friends in correspondence and on forums and things like that. And I think because I asked questions, they started assuming that I was sympathetic to CI. Because I remember once on a forum, and I don't even remember where it was, or, or on a blog, and I asked something about you know the dietary laws, and several people got really agitated and wrote me these really detailed, you know, kind of hot-headed responses about it. And I was thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa! I, I didn't say I embrace that stuff. I just simply asked you a question: what you thought about it? But no, I absolutely do not adhere to the CI stuff. I think this whole idea of adhering to the dietary laws and this goofy nonsense about calling God Yahweh or he's not going to listen to you if you call him by the wrong name or mispronounce his name and all of that, to me, very pharisaical stuff that they follow, That that's not what I believe. My belief about <clears throat> the origin of the Jews and our people, the racial origins of our people, those things either match or very closely parallel some of the things that the CI people teach. But I always have to gently point out to my friends, you know, the Mormons believe that God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that too. That doesn't mean I'm a Mormon. There's a whole bunch of things that I believe that people in wacko groups believe that that doesn't mean that I'm sympathetic to them or a part of them. I, I'll be the first to admit, I'm, I'm kind of a weirdo. You know, I, I'm not fish or fowl, confederate or union. I, I kind of, I'm all over the place. And as I said, I could be wrong. And I freely admit that. I don't stand as a teacher. I don't stand as a priest, preacher, a prophet a cultural icon trying to influence me. The only thing I am is a storyteller. And the stories that I tell have nothing to do with a talking snake in the garden and, you know, how the Jews came about and all that. My stories are about my people today. So it occurs to me that I just really effectively kind of <laughs> did a Jew thing there, didn't I? I kind of inoculated myself against criticism. Like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I don't mean it that way, but I, I'm just saying, you know, I'm not, I don't have all the answers. And, yeah. uh, well, and, I do. And th that's one thing about modern Christianity that drives me absolutely freaking insane is that have you noticed how people will not say, I don't know, when you ask yeah. them a question? Or they won't say, I'll have to think about that. Yeah. They will not say that. They are, they're going to give you an answer even if they have no idea what they're talking about. Even if they don't have that issue thought out, they're going to give you an answer because today's modern soundbite, Twitter, Facebook, MTV kind of generation, we think that you have to always be responding and saying and talking and acting and moving and burning calories there's many times when people ask me questions and I just sit there with my mouth open and I say, yeah. well, uh, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning yesterday, I thought I kind of had the answer to that. And right now, I'm coming up blank. Somebody posted and, an answer to my question. That was, I was wondering how Esau connects to to Cain if he's from Abraham. And the answer is, is that, um, I'm sorry, the Edomites, how do they connect to Cain? And that is because Esau married into the Canaanites. That was it. See, my my people love me. 
Well, I need to check out that article by Addy. Yeah, on... I, I need to go back and, and reread a couple of things and be better prepared for your merciless onslaught of, <laughs> of relentless questions. Let's do the culture and trends segment. Okay. Um, before you... we segue into that, I just want to say one more thing about the Jews. Um, sure. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but I admire him greatly. The fellow who writes the first word blog, um, firstword.us. He is, he's, that's one of the best blogs out there. And that, that fellow is really, really good. And I, I think it was him. I, I think I'm remembering. Yeah, that's uh, Tom Hingist. Tom Hingist. He, he, um, it's his pen name anyway. I, I think he was the one that I read sometime back. He was talking about how our people tolerate our Savior's name being blasphemed yes. in movies and things like that. And, you know, the, people routinely in movies, Jesus Christ, and, oh, yeah. my God, and all these kinds of things. And he said, he suggested, and I, I thought it was hilarious, that if we're in a theater and a movie character says, Jesus Christ, that we ought to stand up and shout out, Jewish effing kikes. And I thought that was a splendid yeah. idea. That's I it. That was. I just thought that was very, very funny and very true. And I highly encourage all of you to go out to the theater and do that. Yeah, he's all about uh, restoring our our language and having the freedom to use our language and define our own terms and to use whatever terms we want to use. And I, I was yeah. really, I do recall that. That was a good point. Yeah, yeah, he's splendid. He's he's a really good writer and um, muscular thinker. I, I got busted once for referring to a fag as a sodom yeah I, I called him a sodomite and some pca pastor said that's just an insensitive word it's like what it's a bible calls him a sodomite i guess i'm supposed to call him gay or something oh i can top that when i was teaching a sunday school class and we were talking about current events in view of the bible and i used sodomy referring to homosexuality yeah a married couple got into a fight in front of all of us uh apparently because he wanted her to perform certain things that she didn't want to perform, and she was using the word sodomy as a jumping-off point for that. So we had this little Dr. Phil marriage counseling meltdown right in front of me, and my wife was looking at me, giving me the signal like, shut it up, cut it off, shut it up, stop it. Yeah. It was horrible. Mickey, so you're I, so I, awesome. Mickey just posted the, the first word link to that that reference okay. that Tom made. Yeah, that was that was good stuff. Sorry to cut you off. That's okay. So where what were we talking about? Where are we going? Um Kikes. Oh yeah. I think we're Ate I think em. we're wrapping up on kikes, kikes right? Yeah, I, I think I've said okay. I've painted myself into enough corners. So. Yeah. <laughs> well people can contact you at yonderfield.wordpress.com and have civil exchanges with you in the comments section. Yes. And And there's a link on there to my email so you can email me if you want. So Okay. However you want to contact me, I welcome any kind of discussion or debate. You've written some stuff on your blog about our fat-ass, flag-waving, nigger-ball-watching, <laughs> stupid men, and our slutty, bimbo, independent, barren, devil-bitch women, and how you've you've seen these 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 phenomena on recent barbecues and stuff. What's going on with our people? Slutty, bimbo, independent, barren, devil, bitch. I am a good writer. I, I am a good writer. That's, that's good stuff. That's I excellent. like that. Uh, ugh, brother, I don't know. I mean, the, the word that I think of when I see the men 
is impotent in every sense of the word. Just, just impotent. You know, we the the men all sit on the couch, and guzzle the beer, watch the niggers play sports. They will actually get into fist fights with other white men about which team or which athlete is the best. They have no idea what their own children's birthdays are. They have no idea who is teaching their children or what they're teaching their children. But they know the statistics. They they can tell you what the batting average of this nigger is or how many yards rushing that nigger scored or how many touchdowns that nigger scored. They can tell you all that stuff, but they can't tell you their wife's birthday or anything else of import. They can't tell you... Um, who the little widow is that lives down the street that nobody ever sees because she doesn't have a car and she stays inside and orders her groceries. Um, They're impotent and contemptible. And our people are that way because it's our fault. And it's also the fault of our pastors. Our lying, emasculated, double-tongued, double-minded pastors who tell these guys that it's okay to live that way. And then you got the women. Then you've got the women with their muffin tops spilling over their jeans that are two sizes too small, and their tattoos, and their unwashed hair. And have you noticed how they all wear pajama bottoms when they go out in public now? They go to a restaurant, and they literally wear pajama pants. Yes, I have. I've noticed that. And their husbands have have their their full arms tattooed from shoulder to wrist. That's a new trend as well. Yeah, I heard that's called sleeving. Sleeving. Oh, nice. Yeah. There's even mm-hmm. a word for it. Well, I think that's. Uh, I think it's pretty telling. I, th- I think it's significant too because what are they doing when they do that? They're literally trying to obliterate their white skin. Yeah. They they are covering what God gave them. They are doing the same thing that somebody does when they go to. Um, a work of art and spray graffiti all over it. Um, it's the same thing with tanning. You know, the, these, especially women, they go to these tanning beds and they pay money to lie there and get baked in these cancer-causing tubes. And if you ask them, why do you do that? They'll say, because I want to look healthy. And the mind reels. You know, the, the, um, the farmer's tan, you know, where the, the guy has his, his forearms and his neck are tanned and everything else is white, that's, that's mocked. People make fun of the farmer's tan. But the fact is, you know, the farmer's tan is earned honorably. It's what you get when you're outside working in your garden or digging fence post holes or, you know, cleaning your gun on a Sunday afternoon or trimming trees or cutting firewood or something like that. That's what you get is the farmer's tan. But they mock that. But they don't mock paying some pervert that probably peeps at them through a peephole um, to go pay whatever it is they pay per session to go lie down in these tanning beds and have their skin mutilated. I work with a lady that does that on a regular basis, and I look at her and I think, you know, you're going to make a really good saddlebag someday. Just that leathery skin and the white eyes. She's the same one that I blogged about some time back. She told me with no sense of shame or irony at all that her and her husband had a 
picture of themselves made at Walmart or Sears or somewhere. And um, her young grandson saw it. Well, her husband is very fair-skinned, and she's about the color of a teakwood coffee table with these big capped white teeth and big blue eyes. And the picture is very unsettling to look at because you've got this brown thing next to this white man. And she said she showed her young grandson this picture, and she pointed at her husband. She said, who's that? And he said, that's Papa. And then she pointed at herself, and she said, who's that? (laughs) And her grandson said, I don't know, but it's scary. (laughs) So, I mean, that's, that's what we have. And then something else that the the women, I'm going to pick on the women here for a minute. They do this thing, and I've I've blogged and linked to blogs about this, the the vocal fry. The way women talk now makes me want to pull out a weapon and start shooting people. Have you heard this? It's, I mean, that's that's the technical term, the vocal fry, where they what's, it, what's they it called? Trail off vocal fry. Oh yes, I know. I think they I know what you're going. Trail off the end of their sentences. Yes. It's like this. Give us an example. Yeah, the other day we went to the supermarket <laughs> and we we bought some bananas, and they all do that. They especially younger women, and it drives me insane when Man. I hear them do that. The when other I, thing that women do, it's always women is this thing, and I've come up with a name for it myself. I I hope to patent or copyright this. I call it the infantile hiccup. They they interrupt words that have uh, T's in the middle of them. For example, they'll say, Oh, what a cute kitten. Oh, you need to put on your mittens. That's good. Around this area, all of the women do that. And, you know, it makes me want to throttle them. It <laughs> drives I, me insane. When I first got into the corporate world about four years ago, and before that I I did not, I was a manual laborer. I didn't have much connection with these people. I started to notice this. Why do these girls all talk the same? They all sound mm-hmm. the same. That whatever you just described, they have that combined with this valley girl, ditzy, bimbo, I'm stupid, but I sound really cute. Uh, so, and, like, and, the, and the question mark at the end of the sentence. Or how about the so likes? We're on tribal theocrat. So, Are like, talking? is this like Wheeler? Like, really? Yeah, we're, like, we're live. How many times can you say like in a sentence? <laughs> it's and you know the cruel thing is once you notice that kind of stuff, that's all you can focus on. Yeah. You don't hear anything else they say. That is that's it. All you hear. Yeah. It's like hearing Eddie Van Halen get interviewed because Eddie Van Halen cannot say a sentence without saying, you know, four times in the sentence. And I, I know it's it's hard it's hard to speak without saying I know, like, and there's a couple other ones I'll talk about here in a minute. But we can at least be mindful of it and try to improve. These people have they have no regard. The, the other two are kind of and sort of. Kind have you heard that? So oh, yeah. I'm going to sort of talk that. to you guys about some things that we're kind of going to be doing here. Um, kind of like, <laughs> it's like, is it, is it kind of, or is it the real thing? You either, you either kind of, you either going to be at work on time or you're kind of going to be at work on time. What, what does that mean yeah. to be sort of? And, and the other one is, or whatever they'll say. Yeah. So we were like, 
going to Applebee's or whatever. And, you know, we were going to, like, get the tooth one special or whatever. I, uh, so we went over, you know, like, whatever. I'd, yeah. <laughs> I'd read to listen to this podcast to see how many times I said like and, you know, and I mean and whatever and uh, uh, whatever. Yeah, be sure my sins will find me out. The women that wear their pajama tops to Denny's and who have tattooed husbands, they also have no kids. Have you noticed this fascination and trend with pet worship? I don't have kids, or if I do, I have maybe one, but I have a bunch of animals, and I'll show you pictures of them. And how about the people that don't have kids but have pets, but they actually refer to their pets as, my kids, here's my here's my little boy, my son. Here's no, my that's a freaking dog. Yeah, I, I work with somebody like that. I work with this girl that um, she and her lugubrious husband don't have any kids, but they've got two massive dogs that sleep in the bed with them. And um, if you could see her and her husband and the dogs, the mental image would undo you right now. But she talks about them that way. She, you know, has pictures of them all over her desk and. It, what's really nauseating about it is she always starts talking about them when the other people I work with are talking about their kids and their grandkids. You know, we'll go see ours and I'll say, oh, yeah, the grandkids were doing well and we took them out and did this and we took my grandson with us when we went golfing and we did this, we did that. And she'll say, oh, well, let me show you a picture of whatever her dog's name is. <laughs> yeah. Because my baby and I did this. And she does the vocal fry and the infantile hiccup and the talking about the dog like a child all in one sentence, which could drive one to Satan worship or CI or Judaism, depending on the mood you're in. But, yeah, I mean, I, I've noticed that they do. They, they talk about and treat pets like human beings. And they're not having children, but I guess that's what happens when they take our niggers away from us. Yeah. <laughs> of course, Any, I bet the Piper and Sproul households are quite happy. Yeah. Any thoughts on our economy, specifically capitalism? Christians love capitalism, but I'm coming to mm -hmm. have a real aversion to, to capitalism. I'm right there with you, brother. I'm the same way. I, I used to, in my 20s, I used to brag about being a good capitalist, and now I look at it and I just, well, it's like I was saying earlier, you know, <laughs> these positions that I once held so firmly, now I'm horrified to think about. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I sound like a Rush Limbaugh fan. I don't know. It's, it's awful. Ain't it awful? It's also awful. It, it's just, it's so destructive to the family. It's so destructive to the Christian family. And, and again, we buy into this stuff. We buy into the mentality. We look just like they do. We act just like they do. We buy things we don't need with money that we can't afford to spend That's it. for purposes that are questionable at the very best and, and sinful at the very worst. <clears throat> and we go into debt, and we encourage our children to go into debt, and we encourage our children to do that thing that God bookends his commandments with. Covet. Covet. Look at it and see it and want it and covet it. And then annoy the piss out of me as your parent until I give it to you. I think that's that's really well said. Everything I'm reading lately on this topic agrees with what you're talking about. If I could just plug a book mm. and, and say something about it, it's called The Hound of Distributism. I 
mentioned it in my last podcast, or at least I put a link in there. And uh, it's these are Catholics because distributism was it came about through Pope Leo the Thirteenth's encyclical toward the end of the nineteenth century, and he was responding to the growing industrial capitalists. And it's quite excellent. And I just wonder why non-Catholics and other Christians don't even talk about the economy and mention something of a, of a critique of capitalism because it does break up the family. It, it takes everybody and puts them on the productive property of some rich person in exchange for a wage. Exactly. And takes it, the father out of the home. Yep. To put, puts him under the slavery of somebody that does not love him or his family. Yeah, it does. It, it destroys the family. The intro to that book can be read for free online, the Amazon Kindle version. It's really outstanding, and the basic idea is that we are we, we are for private property, but we are for as, uh, the wide distribution of ownership of productive property as possible. And with capitalism, as Chesterton said, it's not that, that what did he say? I'm going to screw it up now. Anyhow, with capitalism... It's you have, you have too few that own productive property. Too few are rich, and we are all slaves to their their factories to as as a tribute to live. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, good book. Well, thank you for the recommendation. It sounds great. yeah. I'll, maybe I should put that in the chat room. Yeah, or maybe my servant Mickey could do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> he said he was my servant earlier. And then one last thing, and then we'll we'll do some wrapping up. And I want to know what your position is on American political system do you vote oh my goodness the you, american political system i mean please tell me you <laughs> voted for mitt romney <laughs> <laughs> mittens um no i do not vote and uh, i don't put milk and cookies out for santa on christmas eve either <laughs> there uh, you have it's, it it's about the same thing it's theater it accomplishes about the same amount of good no i don't i've taken a lot of flack from, uh, from friends and especially christian churchy friends for that very thing how dare you how can you well you don't have the right to criticize and i always tell them look i carried a rifle for this country don't ever tell me i don't have the right to criticize it i've got the right to criticize it and i've got the right not to vote why in the world would i vote when you look at the last election the last two elections and you've got the nigger panthers intimidating people, and then you've got the nigger Eric Holder saying, we're not going to investigate this. Yeah. And then you've got Obama where the the people say, we don't want this. And he says, well, I do want it, so I'll take executive action and make sure we do it. Why in the world would I register to vote and waste my time and thereby ensure that I'm going to have to do jury duty? Yeah. Nope, I don't vote. Me either. Okay, we have your blog, so people can get in touch with you, Yonderfield at yonderfield.wordpress.com. Mm-hmm. How else can they get in touch with you or any last comments about your forthcoming book? Um, my email address is on the blog, the link there. It's uh, wheelerkin at gmail.com. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the book I will, as soon as I am ready to, to send it off and, and have it printed and bound and Hopefully, put into an ebook and Kindle format. Also, I will definitely be uh, keeping everybody aware of that on the blog and in correspondence. I'm excited to do that. Um, 
I really, really enjoy, you know, corresponding with people. I, I'm a fairly faithful correspondent. If you write me, I will write you back. And I enjoy meeting folks. If anybody's ever going to, you know, be in my area and want to come by and meet, that'd be great. I've, I've done that to many people, uh, people that I admire. I just write them and say, hey, I know where you live. I know the general area. Can I come meet you? And yeah. it's, it's a good way to do it. Like I said before, quoting old Harold Covington, you can't hide from your enemies. You shouldn't hide from your friends. So we, we need to be building communities. We need to be open to each other. You know, cautious. We, we live in the 21st century, dangerous times, and there's crazy people out there. But we need to be prudently, intelligently open to each other because we're kinsmen. And, you know, kin and family yep. are extended into nations, and that's what we are, and that's what we're about. Amen. Well, Wheeler, thank you so much for doing this show. It's my been... brother, it is my pleasure. I appreciate so much you inviting me on. It's been an honor to have you on, and thank you so much for everyone staying up late. Yes. And and somebody, somebody just asked if I save the chat. I will save the chat for a couple of weeks, and then I'll clear it for the next show. But yeah. August 17th is the next show. One of my favorite, absolute favorite guys, Robert Fingelfin, is coming here to discuss. Oh, yeah. Dis, to discuss my least favorite topic, cops and other, <laughs> other tax parasites with guns, specifically special ops and intelligence. So that should be very, very fun. And... That's it, guys. Happy Sabbath tomorrow, comrades. Tell your pastor to listen to this podcast. He'll love it. See you next time. Yeehaw!